Hey everybody, this is one of your hosts of the Fight or Die podcast, Adam Howarth. I want to first of all wish you all a happy Memorial Day from all of us here at Fight or Die. Um, the podcast that we're going to talk about today is a little bit meaningful, especially for me. This is an episode where I interview the first sergeant that I deployed under as a medic. And we go into a lot of detail. We talk about um, the ups and downs of military service, but especially we talk about our platoon sergeant that we did unfortunately lose while we were deployed. And I think with Memorial Day coming this weekend in the year of 2020 that we want to go ahead and wish you all the best at the same time. Please recognize those who have gone downrange and unfortunately didn't return home. Staff Sergeant Jorge Luis Pena was an outstanding NCO. He had the respect of everybody beneath him, above him, and around him. And in this episode, we're going to talk about the details that surround his sacrifice. And we just want to make sure that we extend the same gratitude to everybody else who has made the ultimate sacrifice and those who have been a part of those situations. And so this episode is a long episode. We're pushing up against four hours. We know that's very difficult for you to maintain all your time and attention, but I encourage you to learn about Command Sergeant Major Tom Upler's career because he has come across a lot of soldiers. He's got great experience, and in his 30 years of service, I can't imagine getting more done in the army. So with that said, we're going to go ahead and we're going to get into this podcast. Um, it's been tough dealing with the coronavirus, COVID-19 families are stressed. It's difficult. We encourage you all to seek out the resources that you can to get through your day-to-day life. If we can be helpful, let us know. We'll, we'll, we'll add more to our collection. We'll try to make it as useful as we can. But at the end of the day, Stay safe, love those around you, and we'll see you on the other side. Welcome to the Fight or Die podcast. You are joined this week by your hosts, Adam Howarth and Will Atkinson. And we, this week, are bringing in Command Sergeant Major Retired Thomas Epler. And there's a few highlights basically from serving from 1984 all the way up a 30-year career to getting out of the Army in 2014. Clearly retiring as a Command Sergeant Major, reaching uh, the pinnacle of his career there and getting some command time. Uh, Full disclosure that I met um, who... It'll take me some time getting used to calling you Tom, but um, I got the the fortunate opportunity to be his uh, his company medic for a period of time in Iraq in 2005. And uh, getting to know uh, getting to know Tom's career, getting to know him a little bit better, um, seeing that for, you know coming from Dubuque, Iowa, going through Armor School, uh, Desert Storm, Desert Shield, Operation Iraqi Freedom, Afghanistan, just basically went everywhere the army would go uh, or, or would send them. So, um, you know, Tom, we welcome you into the studio today and, and hope to have a really nice chat with you. Thank you guys. Thank you guys for everything you guys are doing out there to help the veterans. 
And Adam, congratulations on your turkey. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, it's uh, you can't grow these long beards without without half. About the actual minute. turkey you killed. Yeah, yeah. Okay. No, that I'm was surprised. a fun, that was a fun hunt. You know, as part of reintegration, there was a few years where I didn't didn't do anything like that, and then um, started getting back into hunting and fishing and stuff like that. And I'm the I'm the biggest get on your soapbox and tell veterans about that stuff because, like, one of the lessons I learned out of the military was. Um, the more that I didn't do that stuff that I enjoyed from it, the worse that the worse that life was for me. And so, you know, going back out, kayak fishing was one of my first ones, but kayak fishing, turkey hunting, you're not going to get anything done in the woods unless days ahead of time, you're putting your plan together. You're doing your recon with whatever maps you've got. And then we all know that your perfect plan always falls apart the first time that you end up uh, like on this hunt, I ended up in a swamp getting wet up to my knees before I finally made it to where I wanted to be. What can but, you say you, Perfect plan until first contact. Oh God, I think it's Mike Tyson's got a great one. That's like, uh, everybody's, everybody's got, got a, a good plan until somebody gets punched in the face. You know? <laughs> <laughs> yep, and then all shit goes south. No, you but know, I was you, able to... You put a lot of time in the woods, so I'm, I'm glad you got the time to do that, especially with a new one. Well, she's not newborn anymore, but yeah, yeah, that's, now she's that's... in her terrible twos, so, but so it... you get your hands full. Yeah, but right now everybody's locked down. So my wife is home because this COVID thing. So it gave me the chance to finally, after not leaving the house, but I think one time to go to Costco in the last four weeks, I was able to get out and turkey hunt two days in a row. And, and as most home. of us done, we've all married up, especially Adam. <laughs> I say it every, I think Will tried to make a, a joke the other day and it was like, it's not even a good joke because she's actually a good human. <laughs> <laughs> so get, oh, get your second marriage right, I would suggest. Second, third, whatever you're on, get that one right. We're, we're doing, I just finished turkey season in Wisconsin and, and uh, kind of as we were chatting with Tom before the episode, it, it sounds like you've got some roots here in Wisconsin yourself. Maybe tell us a little bit about your time in, in Wisconsin. Well, I'm not, well, I'm from Iowa, as you said. So grew up in Iowa, joined the army in 2000 or yeah, 1984. Wow. <laughs> when I was 18, I said, so um, one of my duty stations, I was, I met my uh, first wife, Tanya, who was my son's wife, uh, mother. Um, she was in in Kansas going to school, met her. We got married, of course, went to Germany, did a tour there, had our son Taylor, who was born in 91, so I'm not even sure how old that is now. Um, he grew up in Fond du Lac. Um, he's uh, one-eighth one eighth or one-quarter Indian, uh, so his grandpa is a full-blooded, full-blooded Indian. So he was uh, like you, Adam, spends all the time he can in the woods, on the river. Um, so he spends a lot of his time up with grandpa. He lives in Appleton currently, right outside Appleton in a little town. Um, so when I, you know, I, I go to visit him, not often, but when I do, I, I do spend time in Wisconsin. It's real close to my home, my hometown. So if I go there, we can, you know, family usually comes up there and then we just make a weekend of it. So it's, you know, it's, Wisconsin is what it is. It's not a bad, I lived right on the, do you know the, if you're a geog, you know your maps. Uh, if you look where I'm from in Dubuque, I live on, on the Mississippi, it's Wisconsin and then Illinois. So you can literally drive like it's four mile trip, go in Illinois, into Wisconsin and come back in Iowa all within just joining or crossing the Mississippi twice. So of course, growing up, spent a lot of time in Wisconsin because the drinking age was 18 at the time. So all my friends were old enough to get over there and get beer and then we just <laughs> come back across the bridge and, and drink it. So, so I do have a lot of time in Wisconsin just because of fishing. 
on the Lock and Dam right there where I live, number 11, if you're familiar with the Lock and Dam systems. Yeah, I'm familiar with that area because I did uh, my undergraduate degree. I finished in Platteville. Yeah, yeah you're right there. Yeah. <laughs> right in there. And for us, the thing was to head back over to Dubuque and hit some of the casinos that are there now because those have yeah. just exploded. All, in, all my family works at the casinos. Yeah. So they're all on the uh, Diamond Joe there. Yeah, those are fun. started think- on the rivers. The way it used to be, probably when you went there, Adam, it was you would board a boat, a, sh- a little cruise liner, I guess, and it would go out into the water and you would, you would take a little trip, you would gamble and come back in and get, take your ass off. Um, somehow they got around that and they could just dock and you could walk on the boat, do your gambling and, and the boat never moved. So they started building up around it, making it permanent. It was still a boat because it was on the water. Pretty much now it's half in the water, half on the land. And, yeah. you know, there's, they stretch the laws, of course, as much as they can, but that's the way it is now there in, in Iowa. I think the requirement now is once a year, they have to get a mud puddle in the parking lot. Cause uh, I, I don't know. I that new Q is ridiculous. Well, I was so fortunate you- to not get bitten by the gambling bug. So every time I end up at a casino, it's because somebody else wanted to go there and, you know, then, then I'm dependent on what kind of run they go on because it's hard to get some people to step away. Yeah, and it, and, and, and Adam can tell you, I mean, when we were in, in Fort Irwin, I mean, we were off, we had three and four days every month and they were guaranteed. You know, you knew your schedule a year out, two years out. Um, so, you know, you could plan a trip to Vegas with your buddies and I'm sure they all went because we did. So I, you know, and I'm sure we'll get down this, but when I got to, Fort Irwin, I started out as an observer controller in 88 and then came over to the regiment. And, uh, but every month we were in Vegas every month. So it was hard. You were a diehard gambler. You were broke, but if you could just do it just to have fun, you know, you were okay, but it is hard living around that, that environment. Yeah, for sure. I can imagine it wears in the community too. Like Dubuque now it is just a bunch, you know, those big casinos and things like that. So you're able to get a chance to get out of here what uh what was your so one of the things we like to tap in here is that we seem to find that there's always some good stories with recruiters and good bad ugly you know what was your experience getting recruited into the military Uh, uh, mine was easy mine was probably the easiest recruiter it could ever have and it and we all can relate to this so i'm in my senior year and of course we all have girlfriends and the girlfriend breaks up with me you know the love of your life you know forever you never you know you're never gonna find another girl Boom, the recruiter calls the house. Would you like to join the Army? Well, hey, you know, uh, sure. What do you got? We'll give you $5,000. Come pick me up. So pick me up. She put me in front of a computer back then, you know, 1984 computers. Little video of this tank jumping a, a ramp, shooting. I'm like, that's me right there. Put me in. Put me in, coach. So I signed up. Got a $5,000 bonus. Of course, nobody ever believed me. That yeah. I got that much money for joining the army because back then five thousand dollars is probably equivalent to twenty, thirty thousand now. Yeah, that's a decent chunk of change. Um, so, you know, went to Des Moines first time in an airplane, of course, little crop duster out of Dubuque with the propellers. You know, <laughs> no idea what I'm doing. You know, he goes, "Don't worry about it. We'll have people on the other end who will receive you, and you know, we'll get you through your testing, and and then we'll just you know." He goes, I don't see a problem with you not qualifying for that job. So, you know, of course, I didn't know then it was, you know, not the bottom of the barrel, but pretty close, you know, anything uh, combat arms. 
pretty much all you had to do was be able to breathe. Uh, so, I, of course, I qualified, and then uh, off to basic, I went the same year. I joined up, I think, uh, May, April, April, May, about this time, right before graduation, April, May. Mm -hmm. Yep, and then off, and then shipped off in September. Where were you, were you guys uh, over at, where do you guys do yours, uh, Knox, right? It was at Fort Knox. And we, what was back it? then it was OSIT, all one station. So we, it was basic and uh, AIT combined. So we did it. We never left. We just stayed right there till yeah, Christmas break. And then we came back in January, graduated and off to Germany. I went. Now, how did that work out? How did you get Germany right off the bat? Uh, it really wasn't. You didn't have an option. It was, you know, they just uh, needs of the army at the time, I guess, and that was the the thing going on in the Cold War. Yeah, Germany. that's funny to think about. Is yeah, the just the different sort of strategic alignment the force had, like yep. tanks in the middle of Europe. Sure enough. Yeah, but I'm curious. Was, yeah, go ahead, Will. Yeah, I'm curious to learn more about your training experience at you know that time and going through OSIT, like. When were the first time uh, you were introduced to your vehicles in the in the basic training environment? Like, how did that all work? Um, well, and I'm you know because you say that and you said it's a big word there. You know, the strategic was Germany at the time was just getting M1s, and the M1s were just coming out. So the army was transitioning from M60s to M1s, so they needed you know qualified M1 soldiers. Mm -hmm. um, and that was, you know, all basically most of my class all went to Germany. So I ended up with a good portion of my class either in my same squadron or in the area. So in recalling, I think it was less than six weeks that we were already on our vehicles. Like, you know, we learned how to march, you know, the basic salute, respect, you know, um, gate testing. I don't know how did they do gate testing now. Um, I want to say four to six weeks, I believe we were on tanks. I mean, we were on them awesome. quick because there was a lot because it was computerized. And at the time that was huge for the army, you know, anything computerized because the M60 was dinosaur. Just, that's the way it was. So everything was computerized. So it took just a little longer to teach guys just coming out of uh, high school how to use that type of a system because they took you all the way through <laughs> Every station, driving, loading, um, the vehicle commander, and then, of course, shooting the tank. So we all got to shoot, drive, and then uh, we didn't get to command it because, of course, we're privates, but we got to load it, drive it, and shoot it. So were the drill sergeants at the time kind of commanding the tank while you all took up the different roles inside of the vehicle? No. So they had – so you, your drill would, of course, wake you, take you to chow, all that good stuff, punish you and all that good stuff. And then we would march down to the motor pool and then they would turn us over to uh, cadre. So it would be each tank had a, each tank, like you remember us, Adam, in Iraq, you know, um, Sarneaton had his own tank. So you would go to the motor pool and be turned over to a Sarneaton. And then you would take, stay with that guy all through your whole cycle. So that guy was your trainer the whole cycle. So you weren't like, I wasn't getting Will one day and then Adam the next day and then Joe Bob the next day. You had those same guys. So if you were if you were screwed up, then they could go to Will and say, hey, Will, why are you teaching this group of guys this when you know it's wrong? Yeah. So that was the good thing was about it was they did keep you with one guy through your whole cycle. 
what was the maybe some of the most impressive stuff coming with that new M1 platform? Like I can imagine your instructors are dudes who were raised back on the, the was it that Sherman, the M60 or? 60s, the M60. The Sherman was before that. Okay. And so, you know, they were probably more, Bad. had greater aptitude to those, those platforms. So like, what was, what was the big difference jumping onto the M1, which to me is a pretty impressive tank? Well, stability. Um, it had, it had stayed, which is called, you know, stability. So, if you think about, you know, shooting, Adam, which you're very well, and I'm not sure if you're a hunter, Will, which I think you are. Um, you know how when you're you're trying to keep your your sight um, on the target, but your body wants to move all the time. Yeah. Well, with the M60, that's what the M60 did. So you're you're moving, and you got okay, it's steady shoot. Well, with the M1, the tank is doing it for you. It has that's gyros, awesome. literally all over the tank. So your gun tube is constant, but the tank may be doing this up and down, left and right turning, but that, that reticle, the target is stayed right on the target. And as soon as you hit the laser button and get a range, the next, the next squeeze is the trigger. And it's 99% chance, as long as you bore sight it correctly, yeah. like you do your rifle and every your bow, you're gonna hit your target. You may not be dead center, but you're gonna do something to that target. And I remember that, the fun of just is just having that platform coming from the M60 series to that series. You know, the dinosaur guys didn't want to let it go. Oh, I don't believe it does that. You know, I don't believe you have to put in the wind and the, the temperature and because we, we had to do all that. You had to put in the air temperature, the barometric pressure. Um, and if you didn't know it, there was a, a standard setting you could put in the system that it would adjust for yeah. that because every the round comes. When the round is fired, that the computer would adjust for all that different stuff. It actually had a wind sensor on the back of the tank. So if the wind was blowing a lot, it would adjust your round for you. You would never know it's doing it, but you know, it would adjust for you automatically. Wild to me to think that that's 40 year old technology. Yeah. <laughs> and then the ones today are even the M1A2, which I don't even know what version we're on now, V4, I think, or something. Or even, you know, the tank, the, the gunner can be looking at one thing and the, the tank commander is looking at another thing. And the minute the gunner shoots, the, the shoots this target, the commander pushes one little button and the gun slews to the other target within a second and it's locked on dead center. And all the gunner's got to do is pull the trigger. Oh, that's awesome. That's got to be satisfying. I mean, it's because I taught the M1A2. I caught, I taught the M1A2 before I came out there, which is unbelievable. What that what that thing can do. Now, was there any point in time where your cadre looked at you with like a half smile and was like, "All right, you're about to shoot the baddest fucking thing that we've got right here." Oh yeah, have fun oh, with yeah. it. Oh That's yeah, nice. I mean, with and you know, you only get to shoot so many rounds because you know, of course, money. But shit, the cadre wanted to shoot the tank. You know, they wanted to take some of your rounds so they could <laughs> shoot because they don't get to. Even though they see a you know a cycle every, I think it was eight. What, September to January, three, four months, every four months, they get to go through a, a cycle of soldiers and they don't get to shoot it as often, but you can guarantee that they were stealing rounds from us just to get a little practice in on them for them. Yeah, that, and that's one of the things I noticed, like as a medic, you just get, to, you get tossed into whatever group you get tossed in and you kind of run with them for the day. And uh, I'll mess around with tank, like armor, tankers, things like that. But that's one of the few people that I saw that were, like they chose their job very intentionally and really loved what they did. Um, 
and you know, I think infantry guys, it would ebb and flow whether they liked it, but but tank guys, man, there was just such a difference in how excited they got to be on a tank and do that kind of stuff. Well, yeah, I mean, because well, shit, you know, when you go hunting and you shoot, you know, just practice, you're excited just to be shooting a gun, first of all. Oh, yeah. And you know, you're not shooting at somebody, but you're just shooting. But so just imagine shooting a 120 millimeter gun and you get the smell of that cordite, <laughs> you know, it gets you a little, little fucking excited quick. What's the, what's like max effective range on the main gun? Oh, shit, man. I, I'm not going to lie to you. Over a mile easily. Yeah, that's awesome. It just depends which round you're shooting, you know, the, the, the main round is the sable round, which is your armor piercing. Um, literally goes right through anything out there right now. Pretty much anything. Um, the design of that round is to literally go through the through the tank and basically take everything out the other side with it is what how it works. And then you have a heat round, which is just a high explosive anti-tank. It'll hit and it de- when it hits, it just makes a big explosion. Um, that's for your more light skinned vehicles where you just want it like a BRDM or a, not really a truck, but maybe an MRAP or something like that in today's you know society. Something where you just want to stop it right there and then and just and then do a bunch of damage at the same time. Um, that would be a heat round. And then you have your, your uh, MPAT round, which is multi-purpose anti-tank. It's, it shoots out and then it, it'll detonate at a certain, whatever you set it at, or it can detonate on, on impact, but normally it'll detonate before the target so it can do damage around it. And then um, there's a couple new rounds out, not, not 100% familiar with them, so I really don't want to elaborate on those. Um, but, you know, the M60 guys used to have a beehive round. They, we ne- they never had one for the M1. Um, was that like a fichette? Yeah, it was the fichettes one they used in uh, Vietnam. That stuff is wild. Out and then just shoot thousands and thousands of razor blades across the, the jungle. <laughs> um, there was just no need for them. I think after the Vietnam War, they realized it just wasn't a need for that round anymore. And just the devastation it done, I believe. You know, just turkey hunting. You shoot that into a flock of birds, all those razor oh, yeah. blades coming out. Yeah, I, I mean, I would just. I remember watching videos of it because they, you know, they took you to all through those classes, our uh, ammo classes, and. For the tanks, so you know what at least you're shooting. But just to watch that round, just they show it to you just to get you excited, but just to see the devastation that round could do in a forest. Yeah. Unbelievable. Yeah, that's awesome. And then you guys get familiarized. You guys probably got modus on there. You got some type of other crew serve stuff. What else comes? What other fun shit do you get to play with on a tank? Well, it comes with the 50 cal, the modus, which is the tank commander's weapon. And everybody has to shoot it in basic. You have to actually be able to lift it over your head. Um, pretty heavy weapon system. Um, and then the gunner has, of course, his main gun. And then he has a coax. It's a 7.62 millimeter. Oh, it's yeah, displayed right. directly to the main gun. So wherever the main gun is looking, that weapon is looking as well. It You you can bore sight. It's not a bore sight, but it's called a zero. Um, you can shoot it. And every fifth round is a tracer. So you can get it pretty damn accurate um, when you're shooting a set of troops or shooting at a truck, something you just want to stop real quick. And then um, the loader also has the uh, uh, same weapon system for as the gunner does the 7.62. And the only thing is it's 
you can't take it off and run out and be ramble with it without doing a few, you know, a, a, uh, modifications to it. You could, but you know, it doesn't have the handle and doesn't have all the good stuff with it because everything is uh, shot with a trigger bar. Sure. And then that was just each guy has sort a of nine mil, nine mil, and then sixteen M4. You pretty much have everything you want. Yeah, you bet. It's like pack it all, right? It's kitchen yeah. sink. I was thinking. Uh, <laughs> I was thinking the other day about stakes and you know, being crew on a tank's pretty high stakes endeavor. But um, what happened to the guys that like weren't very high performers in your OSIT training class? Um, they would usually wash to the next cycle, or you know, if it's just something. I, I personally don't remember losing anybody to, I guess, non-compliance or non-conformance to uh, being a tanker. Um, of course, the CO wasn't back then. Conscience ejector really wasn't a thing. So I don't really remember losing anybody. Um, we recycled a few due to injuries, but most of them would get pushed through, of course, and then at your unit, you would either make it or you wouldn't. I mean, if you weren't cut up, you would usually end up on a tank <laughs> where, you know, either wasn't the platoon leader's tank or the platoon sergeant's tank or the commander's tank. You would end up on one of the, you know, the lower ranking tank commander's tank. And then if you didn't make it there, you would end up in the training room or supply room or doing something like that. Yeah, I remember had we, we had one guy fail automatic school and I went through and <clears throat> you never <laughs> No, no, no. Ironically at NTC when we finally did our Blue Force uh rotation there at the end of 04 or middle of 04. I think it was the end of 04 because it was starting to get cold. But uh he ended up I don't know what unit he was with, but he was serving chow. Like I went through the line and I'm like, Lewin, dude. <laughs> All you gotta do is study a little more. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, back then it was easy to, to uh, move a guy around into a different MOS because the stakes weren't as, I guess, high as they are now because now you want everybody to be asked to be able to learn life-saving yeah. steps. Well, I just – I think that uh, the armor culture is something different and separate and interesting to me, and I was kind of, like, near it but never a part of it, you know, and it's just – funny to understand that those guys really do think of a lot of the rest of the army as crunchies. Oh yeah. And I'd like to get your opinion on sort of the reputation tankers have around PT. Well, we're known to be lazy. (laughs) Death before dismount, right? Yeah. Death before dismount. Uh, We're known to be fat, (laughs) slow. Uh, So, I mean, I mean, there's some studs out there. I mean, shit, the Sergeant Major of the Army, uh, Preston, was a tanker. He was my first sergeant yeah. in Germany. So before in my second tour in Germany, he was my first sergeant. So um, Chandler was a tanker, back-to-back, back-to-back tankers at the Sergeant Major of the Army. And then uh, Ganey, who was the first SEAC, Senior Enlisted Advisor to the Joint Chief of Staff, was a tanker. Uh there were 19 series. Some of them will tell you they were scouts, but I, they were all tankers in my eyes. Tanker scout. Yeah, there's a big difference, but not not in our world, not in our 19s, pretty much. But compared to everybody else, <laughs> yeah, everybody looks says you know we're lazy. We are. I mean, but 
you know, when you can ride around your whole life and, you know, an infantry guy has to walk, he needs to be in shape. So. Yeah. I've made some jokes on it in the past. Cause like, I remember the first time, the first time I scored a 300 in the unit and I don't know, maybe it was a month or two later, all of a sudden I was awarded a, an AAM for it. And I'm like, what? Like, not an AM for a PT test? This is ridiculous. And then I was like, I know how to get through my my early time is I'm just going to stay fit. And Yeah, I mean, it's, it's easy awards. And, and believe it or not, people look at you different. If you're, if you're not in, if you don't appear to be in shape, but you, you know, you, you look at the SF guys, you look at them guys and if you would look at them, you'd be like, yeah, okay, whatever. And then all of a sudden, you know, dudes over there benching 350, 400 yeah. with ease, you know, and can walk for days without even taking a break. Um, so a lot of it's just perception looking at you and you're like, yeah, he's not in very good shape. So yeah, for sure. Even, that matters. I remember that going into my last brigade at 101st, you know, I went to see the division star major and great guy. Um, but when I came out of the meeting, I, kept, I looked at my other buddy and I'm like, he mentioned running a lot, like, you know, making sure I can run a lot. So it kind of never dawned on me until I met the boss, my new brigade commander. And it was like, okay, so this guy, cause he was infantry and I was armor already. We didn't like each other. So that was a piss poor relationship from the start. Um, but it was just, yeah, it was just like, he wanted to just make, just by, he's like, dude, just make sure you can run. Okay. Is what he was trying to tell me yeah. in a nice way to be a nice guy. So the one thing I noticed, you know, not to jump too far ahead or anything that kind of my feedback as the, the, the other dude is that it seemed like the way that the vehicles moved and communicated was leaps and bounds more efficient. So like, sure, you guys weren't out there running up and down the hills all day, but what you guys did on the vehicles, you did incredibly well. And it was clear, like anytime I'd go jump and, and go on a convoy with anybody else or anytime prior to our deployment, when I was working with other units, they were just, it wasn't that good. So to leave it at that. So that's one of the things that if I ever joke on armor guys, I'll always say at the same time though, like as far as vehicle operations go, it does not get any better or any smoother. I mean, yeah, I mean, it's your life. It's it's like your car, you know, you wouldn't, you know, you wouldn't want your wife to go out tomorrow morning and a car not start and be able to get to work or yourself. So it's, you know, as you know, we did a lot of, especially when we first got those tanks in Iraq. So we spent the first, three weeks constantly in the motor pool we're just working on those tanks because it was our it's a tankers it's, it's their life i mean if, yeah that's, yeah, that's nice really thing. it's a big protection for you but if it doesn't get out of the motor pool it's nothing but a you know a can of you know a big weight a big paperweight sitting in the motor absolutely pool. yeah and that's that's kind of the part i'm curious about more so is like when you have to live on that vehicle What's that like when it's when it's your house and your you know workstation and everything else, and uh, when you're not living on it, like, what's your lifestyle like doing armor operations and then returning to you know base or whichever? Okay, so we'll we'll start with the so basic a typical week for a tanker would be you know Monday we would show up, we would go to the motor pool and we would you know work on our tank constantly you know do our normal preventive maintenance checks all day, you know, and that would be top to bottom of the tank, you know, do maintenance, put on parts, whatever, whatever you needed to do. And then um, usually the rest of the week was um, some type of training, you know, geared towards tank, tank stuff, either, you know, maneuver, shooting, 
move, shoot, move, and communicate, basically. One of those. Um, throughout the week, we would go to the motor pool and just do, you know, little things on the tanks that needed to be done. Um, but Mondays was your main day. Just the first work day of the week would be up, up there working and making sure the tank was ready to go. Um, and you always had it because you had so many weapon systems. You had your, your three cruiser weapons and then all your personal weapons. That, that was a day's worth of maintenance right there. Just making sure your, your weapons, because you don't, there's no way of testing a weapon until you get to the range. So at least pull it out of the arm, armor arms room, make sure it's oiled up, make sure that everything's working properly. And then when you do get to the range, you know, hopefully everything works right. As for living in the tank, it's um, it really depend. excuse me, on your crew. It, you know, I was, a, I had OCD, so my tank was always clean constantly. You know, we would clean our, every night before we went down for the night, wherever we were at, we would always clean the tank. So we would make sure the inside's clean because you're living in it. So um, we would clean it, um, put everything away, just like you would do at your house. Uh, and then, you know, everything was ready for the next morning. Um, but you can live, I mean, you're living, you're living in a, there's three people living inside the turret and the driver unfortunately gets to stay by himself. He's the most comfortable out of the three, four, I mean. You got four dudes at a 10 square foot apartment. Yeah, and you know, three of them are within arm's reach. <laughs> oh. So it's not a very comfortable uh, platform at all until you get to get out and stretch out. And then you have plenty of places to sleep. Chances are you never get the driver out of his station because his station lays all the way down into a complete, you know, almost a vertical position, almost. The rest of us get out and usually some find some, if it's in the winter, we'll sleep on the back deck where the heat is. If it's in the summer, we'll sleep on top where it's cool. And then um, we normally never slept out around the tank, never, always on it somewhere. Um, yeah, I was just, you know, you, you don't really get to pick your crew um, unless you're the platoon sergeant, then you get to kind of move who you want into your position into those positions on your tank. But sometimes if you're coming into a platoon and everything is already set, it's hard to break up a crew because that crew is qualified already. Um, and they don't want, they don't want to break up that crew because they're qualified together already and they already have a system going. Um, I've gotten lucky and I've had always really good gunners in my, in, in my, when I was a platoon sergeant. You mentioned qualified there. You know, I think that a lot of folks that go in and serve probably have no idea what the process is for you guys to get your vehicles prepped, to do a gunnery, what that means for a crew, not only for being, uh, you know, operation ready, but also like what that means for a crew as far as how these guys get along and how they see themselves as a unit. So maybe, maybe embellish a bit or, or explain, expand a bit on that idea of, of how that process well, I usually happened twice a year. It was a semi-annual. Um, it was a, it was a month long, month long process just to qualify, um, because it's just because it's just not just you and your your troop out there. It's, it's usually your whole squadron. So you're looking at 54 tanks out there, and Bradley's trying to all qualify and all using the same uh, ranges. So it's usually a long process. Sometimes it can be a boring process because you're not shooting every single day, unfortunately, um, as much as we would like to, but. Prior to that, of course, you have to do, of course, you're doing all your maintenance to make sure your tank is ready to go. Um, they, they, 
they, they come in and they do a, <clears throat> what they do a call a bore scope and pull over of your tank. <clears throat> I'm sorry, of your gun tube to make sure it's not there's no cracks. It, it's a big a big microscope that they put inside the gun and then they pull it back. And it's it's a it's a it's another job. It's another MOS. We ain't doing it. It's a higher yeah. higher level maintenance. <clears throat> they come down and they they run this they run this um, big microscope down down the tube checking it for cracks or anything that's not, not normal. <clears throat> they, they check the, um, to make sure the gun recoils. Um, the gun recoils uh, 13 inches inside the tank when it shoots, which you don't even see it it's so fast. So they, they recoil it. They have a truck that recoils it to make sure that it's not leaking or anything and all the seals are good so that when you go out, it's safe, of course. So the last thing you want to do is have a, a gun come out of battery once you shoot it. Oh. It can be ugly. It can be dangerous, of course, because you never know what's going to fly off. So that's you do the maintenance part, and then there's the training part that you have to do. It's there's a, a test that each crew member has to do. Uh, it's called uh, TC TCGST Tank Crew Gunner Skills Training, and it's about a 16, 16 stations, kind of like the EIB and the medical expert badge. Oh, cool! You go to all these stations, and you have to pass every station. Um, of course, you get three tries. You don't pass it, you don't shoot. You just you'll end up at uh, you know on the ammo pad, garden ammo, or at the mess hall pulling KP or guard duty. You just mm. you won't shoot with your tank if you don't if you can't pass it. So you have to pass that, and then of course getting the stuff to the range, and then you start out. It's everything's different now with the numbering system, but ours was you would start out with uh, tank table four, which is you would just shoot. Uh, you would act like you're shooting at something. It's just a, it's just a getting uh, the drills down within the crew. You know, the, the fire commands, the um, switchology for the gunner, and then just the, you know, just the, the, the basic drills. And then you would move to table five, <clears throat> which is just machine guns. You would shoot just the machine guns on the tank at, at actual targets. And then table six would be, uh, a, you would shoot a stationary tank at stationary targets. Then you would move on to table seven, which is stationary and moving targets, and you're moving. So you would do you would do that, and you have to pass each table. On well, you don't have to pass it; you have to at least try. <laughs> so those tables get you ready for the, your qualification, which is table eight, which is table eight, and that's your that's our big Super Bowl is table eight. Yeah. <clears throat> we go to table eight. <clears throat> excuse me. Qualify there. Um, get the rights for the top tank bragger, and then. Um, if, and then once a year, the unit usually does table 10, 9 and 10, which are sections. So two tanks would shoot together, and then um, the other two tanks would shoot together, and they're called a section, and they would qualify together. And then uh, platoon, then table 12 is the whole platoon is shooting at the same time, which is, to me, is, is just awesome. You, know, you got four tanks up there shooting at multiple targets on the range. At the same time, you have artillery coming in downrange at the same time so it brings all your your um, skills all at once as a platoon to fight together so yeah that's awesome i remember you know as a medic we'd cover a lot of these ranges and gunneries and things like that <clears throat> and i didn't have a lot of times where i was jealous of what jobs other guys chose <clears throat> but i remember like as seeing you guys it seemed like as you tuned up to go out on table eight 
there was just a different energy in the air that guys were, you know, you'd gotten some time together with your crew that I remember even just standing back and watching guys in line waiting for their tank to go up and do uh, their iteration, just seeing everybody tuned in. And that was one of the first times I probably was a little bit jealous at some of the different combat arms MOSs. Um, looking back, I'm not, you know, I enjoyed my experience, but that was one of those times I was like, man, these guys are getting a little bit something different than what I'm getting out of my military experience right now. Oh yeah. It's, um, you have fun all the way up to table eight, but the minute you're, like you said, you're on that ready line and it's your turn. It's, you know, it's your career basically, because if you can't qualify, then, you know, the army really don't need you to be there. To be honest with you. Yeah. Or, and if you're, you know, your, your evaluation, unfortunately will reflect it. Um, so that you had that pressure along with just wanting to do good because it's just human nature to want to be able to do good and, have that bragging rights for the six months until the next qualification. So normally, like you, you said, get- you know, your crew is together and you really don't want anybody else around you. You kind of just like, look, go do your thing. We're going to do our thing. So a lot of guys stay to their by selves as a crew till after that table eight, after the table eight shooting. Yeah. I was in the same yeah, position awesome. as you were Adam. I'm sorry, man. But, uh, I too covered, you know, a number of these, of these gunneries and ranges and, and the energy is palpable. And even just talking about it, you know, thinking back, I can, I can feel my own heart rate going up because, you know, uh, guys are getting dialed in just as you described and they're, and they're sticking together tight. And as that medic, we had a unique vantage point, I think, to be able to observe that. And then being an outsider, like, not so familiar with the tables as the as the platforms are moving down range here in the you know the various the the big gun go off and the and the coaxials too it's just it really is an exciting event and um you know i appreciate being reminded of of some of those fun times weirdly you know in my first two my first two assignments well shit all the way up i can't remember till when but we used to let we used when we used to do table twelve, <clears throat> it wasn't a big deal. So it was yeah, you would go out there and shoot as a platoon, and if you did good, you know, hey hey, congratulations. But table eight was the the end of it. Table twelve was just kind of like a check the box. So we would let literally we would let the cooks, the medics, the mechanics, anybody that had a desire, we would let them come out and squeeze triggers. And you know, for a young medic or a cook even to be able to get in there and, you know, pull triggers a couple times throughout at gunnery. One, it's an excitement for him or him because it's, it's not his job and he gets to do that. It's bragging for the rest of his life. Um, and it shows them how important they are to us. If they're not just sitting in the medic vehicle until unfortunately we need them. So, yeah. I tell you that was, those are some long days out there. Just, oh, you know, yeah. toes up in the litter. 24 hours a day because those gunnery is they don't they don't stop just because the sun went down you know but we're not doing much just like you said unless unless something goes wrong exactly so you want to be a medic at a, at a gunnery is trying to tell everybody that you cannot drink an entire bottle of robitussin at night <laughs> no i will not give you drugs <laughs> so I, I gotta ask you uh, what's what's the saber over your left shoulder there Oh, what kind of we- what weaponry do we have here? Those are the, uh, it's the MCO sword that we would do for uh, change of responsibilities at the first garden uh, and CSM level. That's the one they got me when I left uh, my first squadron. Cool. 
what a fantastic piece of memorabilia. Yeah. Yeah, it is. Definitely. So um, your first unit you said was Germany. Is that right? Yep. 2-2 ACR. So what were your impressions uh, at this time? And you're still what, 18 and you're, you're, yeah. you, you had signed papers in the springtime of 1984, like March, April, Yep. then left for training in September. Now it's what, three months later, maybe four January, months. January of 85. <laughs> and here you are in a different country having just been trained on like the, you know, the, one of the coolest weapon systems ever. The one that's still like the main battle tank for the army today. Yeah. Going into a Germany that to my understanding was still split for a few more years, right? Oh yeah. Yeah. It wasn't until a second tour. So yeah. So just getting there, you know, brand new private, nothing on your collar, you know, speak English. That's it. So you, know, you get to a brand, like you said, a foreign country, um, no family, no nothing, but you know, lived in the barracks so it was okay um but it was it was it was different but it was um a lot of memories to look back at just to say you know one i spent time in germany i got to spend time in germany and then you know it was you know free <laughs> so, it was a, it was was it west germany at that time then yeah it was west yep wow that's crazy and where were you i was in bamberg germany second acr and what main, was it like? Go ahead. I was just, I was just curious. Uh, what was it like getting integrated with your first tank crew out in the big army? Um, it was actually really good because when I first that first assignment, the um, a platoon was made up of scouts and tankers. Um, <laughs> whereas now it's you have platoons of just tankers and then a, a platoon of just scouts. Back then they were integrated. You would have. Uh, half tank, half platoon, or half tanks, half scouts. So it was very easy. I mean, the guys welcomed you very, I mean, they welcomed me because one, I was always, I was always asking questions, always never late for work, always, you know, just did the right things. Um, moved up pretty quick in rank in that first assignment. You know, within two years, I was already, when I left, I was already E4 promotable. Um, but our duty, we were on the, that was one of the um, assignments I was in that we did border duty. So for two years, we just did uh, every three months you were out on the border for 30 days at a time doing border patrol on the East West German border. We live in such a different world now, you know, that's easy to forget. Oh yeah. Yep. Yeah, I think of any time I hear anybody going to Germany, it just seems like they got a chance to go kind of work hard, play hard. But I suppose at that point, the geopolitics in the region were still just way different than what, what they are today. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, now when you say you people go to Germany, you're like, well, what are you going to do? You know, like, yeah. All you have is really is the is the training center. You know, that's it. So you're like, well, what else is there to do? But, I mean, there, I'm sure there's stuff going on. Well, we have uh, something going on. You talked to that you listened to our episode with Rachel, who was uh, at the time in the Ukraine and her first duty station, I believe, was in Germany. And she talked about uh, kind of being, you know, a hazing or a welcome, welcome to the platoon opportunity to where they took her downtown, got her good and drunk, and then locked her up in a hostel, gave her 20, put 20 bucks in her pocket and hoped she found her way home. Was there, uh, was there any kind of welcome like that where the guys took you out and took good yeah, carry on one night? I mean, not, 
I guess you could call it hazing, but I mean, there was no beating or um, yeah. there was no beating, but it was, you know, the I remember the first first couple of days I was already downtown, you know, drinking with the boys and, you know, they would, they showed you how to exchange money. And I mean, the good thing about Germany back then was the first, when you got to your assignment, you didn't report to your, you got your assignment. So you went there, but then you belong to, um, I guess call it garrison or whatever you want, but you belong there for two weeks to end process. And you went through what they call the head start program. So you went through two weeks of uh, German, German class, English, German language, and German customs and courtesies and stuff like that for the first two weeks. And then another week you would learn, you know, all the stuff to keep you out of jail, you know, the sofa <laughs> and, you know, German laws and stuff like that, because, you know, the last thing you want to do is end up in jail in Germany, excuse me, in Germany. So you didn't really didn't get to your assignment for the, for your platoon for like three to four weeks. And then. I mean, I, maybe I just got lucky and had a, I mean, yeah, there was hazing, but it wasn't where people were beating each other and it was just, you know, verbal hazing, you know, messing with you and sending you to off on wild goose chases looking for shit that don't exist. Yeah. yeah. That's, that's some of my favorite stuff is uh, thinking back on motor pool Mondays and you see some private running, running with a big black trash bag full of air across yeah. the motor pool. Yep. And you're like, Oh God, that dumb motherfucker thinks he's taking an exhaust sample. Or, you know, squelch oil and shit like that. So, you know, and then promotions were, were kind of scary to watch, you know, you're scary because everybody would get, they have to walk the gauntlet. You know, of course, that don't happen no more, but that happened yeah, yeah. then, and so... There was still a little bit of that in the mid 2000s because I oh, remember, yeah. I remember distinctly. I think right when I made E4, uh, having that pinned in, and I remember right when, there, they, yeah. when they first put it on, no, they didn't put the backings on. And yeah. in my mind, I'm like, huh, this seems different. Yeah. And I learned, I learned how much that rank is appreciated. I suppose. I can tell you, I, mean, I you know the you know the seals and the rangers and the aerosol and airborne. They probably do it at a level where no one sees it, probably because it's just tradition. I, I'm all for it as long as you ain't. Unfortunately, people didn't break their collarbones and shit like that when you do have <laughs> that one guy who takes it over the edge. Yeah, there's always the one guy, but I still think like it's one of those things that says go get in the gym and build your body up because this is gonna happen. You're gonna get your rank. Yeah. You know, nice and well seated into your uniform. Yeah, blood stripes. You earned them. So, <laughs> I was really grateful to be included in that sort of rite of passage, especially having transitioned from a support unit to a combat arms unit as the medic. You know, so it really like helped me feel included. But um, these these border patrols back to Germany, these border patrols that you're doing, that's those are mounted armor operations so you're riding your tank out there for a month no, no no the tanks we would take the tanks but they would never go nowhere near the border because that would be considered a hostile um intent everything was by back then it was by jeep or foot patrol so you would basically if you were if you were lucky if you got a mounted patrol because you know maybe you would just drive the, the different areas of the border that, that you owned for that for that month and it would, you'd be out there all day, camoed, full camoed up and everything. And you would just drive to these different checkpoints and spend 15, 20 minutes at a checkpoint. And then those were mounted. But if you did dismount it, 
you would you'd be taken out in a in a one one three, dropped off at checkpoint A, and be picked up at checkpoint Foxtrot six hours later. Um, of course, making radio checks, reporting stuff. It was fun because it was a cat and mouse game with the East Germans. You know, it was, <laughs> they'd see you, you'd see them, and you'd play little games with them and stuff like that. And then, you know, you would just hope you wouldn't get shot at because. <laughs> I mean, it's it sounds ammo, like a great but, time and. I mean, we yeah. had ammo, but it was you know, had freaking tape over the ammo, and you you know the first round was dumb, dead because it had tape goo all over it. You know, it was just heaven forbid you lose a fucking round out on the border, you'd be out there for the rest of your life. Oh God. One forty-five, you know, round back then. So that'd be awful. And one one threes you mentioned that was the one thing like uh, medics got to use one one threes, and when we did yeah. our one blue force rotation out there, uh, we had we had the one one three, and that was like one of those times where I was like, oh, I'm still so glad I'm lower, I'm low enough that I get to drive this thing, because we we should have thrown track on that one one three at least twice. I remember uh, Blodge at my TC at the time. Literally at one point, I think he almost went out of the turret, and he was like, "Dude, you're gonna get us killed here." And I was like, "I know, this is awesome." Oh yeah, <laughs> and then being at NTC, it's even more dangerous. But a one one three, yeah, that was as I moved up in the ranks. That was the one thing I dreaded was moving up to the first sergeant rank because you lost your tank, and now you've got a one one three. What a demotion! Like, <laughs> like, yeah, huge, like a huge demotion. You know, and then you didn't even TC it because. You had a, because you were busy doing other stuff inside, you know, trying to get food for the, the troop. And you had a TC already, you know, and your driver, but you would never, the shooting of the weapon was always somebody else. You really kind of lost everything once you be made first sergeant. God, that would suck. I, I feel like I must have missed the day that I was probably supposed to get licensed to drive that or somebody okay. pencil whipped it. Because I remember the first time I went in reverse, getting used to the idea that you have to turn it the opposite way that you'd expect. Yep. Um, little things like making sure that you keep tension on the back ramp because if you lose tension and then unlock it, that you're going to have a surprise. But all the little things that went with that track vehicle. And that was actually a really fun rotation because uh, they kept us pretty busy. I think there was uh, 1st Infantry Division maybe out of Kansas came for that. And we got tasked out to them doing a lot of different stuff like that, at least as medics, I remember that. Um, that was a lot of fun with those 113s. So then, yeah, I didn't um, get to spend a lot of time on them, thank God. Well, that's probably good for it. Nobody needs to be emasculated like that. No. But, uh, you know, what was, is there anything else meant, worth hearing about in Germany? Any good stories about you guys uh, out and about or any good? No, I mean, because uh, my, well, my first tour, I was, you know, just, uh, I was just, I made E4 and left and that was it. Uh, off to Fort Riley and then, but, it was a very busy two years. I mean, you didn't, I mean, you could, you had freedom of going wherever you wanted and stuff like that, but you couldn't own a car if you lived in, if you were in E4 and below, unless you were married. Um, you really had no purpose, reason to have a car, really. I mean, because you're in Germany, you took the, the public transportation was pretty easy. And it was very, very, the dollar was very high back then. I mean, you mm. could, you could go out on a night on a town for twenty dollars. Wow! And do everything, you know, a taxi ride in a Mercedes, you know, drink, have a little something to eat on the, and then a taxi ride back home for twenty dollars. And mean, that's something people don't know about, like um, 
in the military, your life as an E1 to E4 is pretty damned easy. You know, your, your food's always coming from somewhere, you know, where you're sleeping, you know, what you're, you know, you know where to be when you're supposed to be there. And when you're not supposed to be there, go do whatever you want. Kind of a thing. Like, you know, within boundaries, but I, you know, looking back now, late thirties, kid house, all this other crap that we have to maintain, like the idea of just being told you have a three day weekend or a four day weekend. I, I cannot fathom how good we had it. And at the time, I don't know if I, I, I gave it enough credit. Oh yeah, you're right. Yeah. I mean, it was the only thing you worried about was yourself and, and staying out of trouble and then making the next promotion. So you had more money. <laughs> so I mean, that was it basically. Yeah. I mean, you pretty much summed it up as an E4 and below. Well, I'd say specialist and below. I mean, yeah, yeah, fair game, fair game. A bit more responsibility. So then you you ended up over at Riley. Um, was there a difference in maybe the cultures in each unit, or or kind of what was your what, what was it like transitioning and um, and processing? Well, Riley was there? like like nobody wanted to go to Fort Riley because it's it was just horror. It was the it was a Junction City, Kansas. Um, and there's nothing, nothing's in Kansas. So when I remember the day I got my orders, you know, the platoon sergeant's laughing at me or I got my assignment, didn't get the orders, of course, because you have to go through all the process, but he's like laughing at me because I'm going to Riley. And I'm like, well, you know, I don't, I don't know any better. I've never been there. And it, it actually ended up being a pretty good assi- assignment, I thought. I mean, I, I enjoyed it. A lot of people didn't like it, but I did. So, well, what was some of the stuff that made it good for you? It just... I guess the location, I mean, it, I mean, it was a horrible location, but um, I just met a group of people that spent a lot of time outdoors. So mm. we did a lot of fishing and boating um, and stuff like that. I mean, so, and the, the big thing for me was when I got to Riley was they never had, they didn't have M1s yet. So they had M60s. Oh, geez. So literally, I, I mean, I remember this like the back of my hand. You know, I get assigned to a platoon. I'm an E4P. I get assigned to a platoon, and and uh, I got lucky. The first sergeant knew me. He he was in the second ACR with me as a first sergeant, and he knew me from the squadron. And um, he was he was already there as a first sergeant. He's like, I'll you know you're gonna go to this platoon, but hey, just remember they don't have them ones yet. We're getting them in a couple months. What so just do what. You, you know, and the platoon sergeant tells me to go check the oil, and I'm just looking at him like, you know, where's it at? You know, I don't know how to do anything. You know, the platoon sergeant basically kicks me out of the motor pool and tells me to go see the first sergeant. I ended up getting hired as his training clerk, um, which for me was good because I didn't know anything about an M60. And and you hear all the war stories about how dangerous they were and, or are. So I ended up being up there until we got the M1s. Um, ended up being the XO's gunner, which – Ended up being a good thing. Moved, nice. up, moved up to a gunner's position before I made E5. And then back then they used to have um, acting sergeants, acting jacks, where they would put E5 stripes on you as long as you were promotable. You didn't get paid for it, of course. Kind of like frocking. Yeah. Um, so people were like, well, you were just in E4 yesterday. What the hell is going on? First arm put it on me. And I just do what the first arm tells me to do. So, but I had, so that was fun being, learning a different part of the army about the the paperwork side of the house, which I enjoyed that. I enjoyed being a training NCO. Um, of course, they didn't have computers yet. Everything was done on a, on a typewriter. Mm. So that part was hard, but it was fun getting that part of the army 
knowing that part of the army, you know, because as an E4, you don't know what happens. All you're, like Adam said, all you do is you're told to be here, be in, be in this uniform, and you're going to go here. Okay, well, in the early room, you got to see how all that evolved, you know, where the orders come from, and then how the commander interpret, interprets that order and gets it out down to the platoons and then the execution. Yeah, that's so funny to a more lonely place to be as an E4 medic walking into the orderly room uh, for anything. And I'm just like, I, nobody wants me here. This yep. is a stupid place for me to be. <laughs> no, I enjoyed it. I, I stayed there for two and a half years and then I got orders for Germany again. Of course, met my wife, my first wife there and had our, or we didn't have our son until we got to Germany, but I met her there and then we moved, moved to Germany. So you're moving on up then. You finally got a little bit of a little bit of rank. You uh, I'm eighty five at Fort Riley, yeah. Yeah. I left there as an E five P actually. Cool. So for me, because I was in the training room, um I got to know all the first sergeants very well because you back then wasn't, you know, send you send me an email and I'll get you the you actually had to do face to face. Yeah. So I would get to know all the first sergeants by going to each company or troop and, and then Actually, the company does not a tent company, and then asking for stuff. So when I went to the board, it was basically a, I went in, I saluted, and bought, asked, you know, and left with a, you know, two hundred. So. Yeah, that works. I remember even at the time I was in in the early two thousands, you know, the internet and all that stuff was there, but I don't know if that's how the workflow was happening. I remember. I was encouraged as a PFC to start doing soldier of the month boards and things like that. Like that was the way to get a little FaceTime, especially as medics. Cause nobody knows the medics unless you finally have your company medic, you're going to deal with that guy. But I remember that was one of the things that's actually the first time I got exposed to you was when I went to a soldier of the month board and you were, you were running that board. I remember uh, Sergeant Rivera was there too. A couple of people that stand out in my mind. And that was just one of those kind of wake up calls because there's just such a difference in the way people communicate in line units versus the way they communicate in headquarters units. It's just a oh, different yeah. world. And I remember walking in the first time and uh, uh, the guy who prepped me at the time was, I think it was special. And we were, we were doing a mock, mock, uh, mock board. And I remember answered the question of something like, I believe. And then I said something, he's like, no, you don't fucking believe shit. You know it. <laughs> He's like, if you walk in front of these guys and you show that you maybe, maybe know the answer, they're going to eat you apart. And it was just yeah. like, I remember walking in there and feeling that. And I was like, oh, all right, here we go. Yeah, I could definitely relate getting some junior soldiers ready for their promotion boards and stuff. And it always struck me, no matter how much they studied, no matter how good their preparation was, if they didn't have their attitude right, it was in like a lion and out like a lamb because you come in and you sound off and like try and be aggressive and gung-ho and then you get your knowledge tested and you, you know, if you don't truly have some depth of competence, that facade or whatever bravado is going to evaporate pretty quickly. So it's, it's important, I think, to, uh, you know, bring that word ethos and, Oh, yeah. Maintain your composure when you're trying to do those sorts of things. Yeah, I remember one of the questions I got asked, and this is just the social of the month board. I can't imagine promotion boards, how, how they would have dealt with it. But I was given like a 10-digit grid coordinate and asked to like tell me where out in the training area this was. And I'm just sitting there like, man, I am lucky. I We didn't have cell phones or any of that shit to distract you. So I would literally just look at the maps. And so I remember getting lucky because I was previously with Alpha Troop. 
And we had just, our last rotation, we'd spent a bunch of time up in this particular area up on the Northwest side of the box. And I think I got within about five clicks maybe of where we were supposed to be. And when I found out what it was, I was like, Oh God, at least I was close, you know, give myself a chance here. Well, that's how the boards used to be was the little parts were hands-on and then the rest were from questions. And that way you, you know, cause it, you know, you've got guys that can tell you every answer by the book without a question, but then tell them to go lead you to go do something. And he looks at you like you got a dick growing out of your foot. <laughs> you know, so. Truthfully, well, I ended difference. up in a, I ended up in a, in a bit of a, an embarrassing situation when I did my promotion board for E5, because it was right on the cusp of our deployment in 2006. And they had transitioned from sort of like a garrison style board and, class a's to the field style board and you know your full battle rattled full you know armor and whatnot um and they changed the subject matter too and i've been studying for about a month and a half prior to my actual appearance uh, and it, it caught me off guard because i was just like didn't get the memo until like a little later so i walked in real sharp on a certain you know set of uh subjects and they asked me to react to indirect contact there in the <laughs> battalion conference room like i dove under a table and saw cover for sure but i didn't really like know what to do next in the confines there so i was fortunate to get out with a passing score i mean that's what happened when i when i went to the my e4 e5 board back then i i can't i think it was 200 points yeah it was 200 points i literally think i scored like a 152 barely passed i mean it was I was so nervous, and even though I knew the stuff, I just couldn't get it out, articulate it. So I think my first sergeant probably, you know, did the, hey, look, this guy is going to be a good leader, and let's just get him through. So it, it took me a while to make E5 because I that was 40, literally 48 points that I shit, I shit away from the board. So when I went to Riley, I actually re-went to the board, and I, I renew all the first arms again from that, and I, it was a, I literally walked out like a 190 something, got promoted right away after that because of those 40 points. But then when I went to the sixth board, it was even easier because I knew everybody. So, but yeah, yeah, face I, to face. Even when I was a sergeant major, I, the boards to me were it was a formality. Um, so to me, it was getting out and looking and looking at the soldiers who were coming to the board and getting the, their, their first sergeant weighed a lot on them and, and the guy who brought them or gal who brought them. Um, th that to me waved a, a lot, gave a lot of merit to that board. If you can answer yeah, anybody can, with today's technology, I can ask you a question and in five minutes, you're going to give me the answer, but, but that's not a leader. I don't, to me, that's not a leader. Getting people to follow you as a leader yeah. and trusting you. Well, so now you're probably, you know, you head to Germany, E5 promotable. You're probably starting to get your, a pretty nice taste of being able to lead folks. What was, you know, you go from the orderly room and stuff like that, transition to the Exos gunner, then you go over to Germany. Well, you know, take us through that transition. So I get there. Oh, shit. So I'm married. Married. Um, now, you know, it's my second tour to Germany, so you can think you know it all and so I got there and knew some people that I was going there with um, instead of going through the head start program I just tested out of it <laughs> you can go and take a test and you pass and just so you don't have to sit there for two weeks 
But then, you know, I get there, my unit is already at the, now I'm in 11th ACR, my first time in 11th ACR. Oh, yeah. I'm in Alpha Troop. Um, good first sergeant, great commander. And then, uh, so they assign me to uh, 4th platoon, but the unit is at the border. They're at the border doing border duty. And then you to go on the border, you had to be qualified. There was a written test, or a lot of written tests you had to pass. Once again, political stuff. So you know what to do in case shit hits the fan. So I didn't get to do a tour with them because I think I got there in 89, 90, 91. Yeah, so something like that. 89 or 90, something like that. And then, uh, so I didn't get to do a tour on the border because the border, I got to go up actually for one, but then the border shut and then, you know, the walls opened up. So that kind of went away. So it was, it was just gunneries and stuff like that. So it took a while. Um, so instead my first sergeant's like, well, I can get you into BNOC. You want to go to BNOC while the units, you know, at uh, the border, because then we're going right into gunnery. And you, we can go to BNOC, we'll pick you up to BNOC and take you right to gunnery. And I'm like, yeah, let's do it. So that was kind of my, into Germany, my first three months was in the field. You know, I got, brought my wife at the time. She got there and I basically told her, hey, the stuff's being delivered this day. Um, I'm going, I'll be at school and then I'll be uh, at gunnery. I'll see you when I get back. <laughs> so, <laughs> She it was had okay for her. For it was okay for her. She got she got to meet the wives and stuff back then, and and she got her driver's license before I did. And she was a cosmetologist, so she got a, a job right away on for on the on the post, um, working for a German, work cutting hair. So it was you know things worked out great, you know. Oh, cool. And then we did gunneries, of course, and then we and then we got the uh, the uh, order to go to uh, Desert Storm. What I'd, I'd like to ask you, if you were in Germany when the Berlin Wall came down, what what was that experience like? And did you even notice sort of away from the epicenter of it all? Or tell me more about that, if you don't mind. I, mean, we were, I was in Fulda, which was, I'm sure you've all heard of the Fulda Gap. So basically, we were just the speed bump, you know, for the, the Russians when they came through. Um, so really not, I mean, you know, we were... The, the, the squadron I was in, we were, we had OP Alpha and OP uh, India. I'm sure those were all, you know, big names. Everybody always heard, hey, OP Alpha, you know, like OP Charlie and stuff like that. But we had OP Alpha in India. So really it wasn't a, it was like, yeah, you heard it on the news and the wall's down. And so basically it was like, okay, so now what do we do? We're, and that's what I'm here for. So you're like, well, what do we do now? So that's when the, you know, the gear shifted to, so, you know, more gunneries, more field time, you know, reforgers, stuff like that. Um, but then, of course, in 91, Desert Storm hit. So everything went out the window again. What kind of work did you, what kind of a workup did you guys have for that? You know, we got about a good six months notice to go to Iraq um, in 05. But what was the workup for you guys for Desert Shield, Desert Storm? Well, you know, it's funny that, so we were at, so when the war kicked off, we were originally, if, if you would ever talk to anybody who was at the initial crossing the berm, all of their orders, every one of their orders said 11th ACR on it, but it, they weren't 11th ACR. They were, I think it was 3rd Armored Division at the time, or 2nd Armored Division. They literally, we were, 
we were supposed to go first to be the initial because we were in Germany, of course. But it was like, a, I don't know how to say it. Well, hey, you know, 11th ACR has already got all these battle streamers. So let's get another unit to go to kind of get some oh, battle streamers, basically. So everything that the first unit that crossed the berm, one of the first units, it all said 11th ACR, but it wasn't them. It was, we were stuck in Germany, of course. So then when the war was over, the, all the fun shit was over. We got orders just to go in to Kuwait and be uh, um, like a reaction force, which was fun. But at the time my wife was pregnant, so she was probably five months, four months already pregnant going being pregnant with my son and it was it was like okay so if you're if you're having a baby during during the deployment you have a choice you can stay or go and at the time it was first arm preston at the at my first arm he was kind of like you know might not ever get this chance again to get a combat patch kind of like a big thing so you should probably think about it so i was like yeah i'll go on with no problem but then my I, uh, me and my commander actually got into a full-blown argument in the orderly room one day because he was single. And he didn't give a shit if you were married or having a baby or not. He was taking you whether you wanted to go or not. <laughs> so it was my first arm. And actually, I became good friends with him because my my wife and his wife were really good friends. And his wife was going to be my wife's, uh, what do they call midwife for because we were ramping up the lead. So they had become really good friends. So he kind of pulled me off to the side, said, just relax, you know, I'll figure it out. We'll get this figured out. Uh, if you want to stay, I'll, I'll back you up. But it was a full blown, like he really wanted me like out of the, <laughs> and I was actually his gunner at the time. So it was kind of awkward, but then, you know, we patched it up and it was, you know, I ended up getting my own tank when we, when we did deploy, I ended up being a tank commander. You know, I actually got promoted to staff sergeant while I was in desert. How long were you guys, you know, how long were you guys sitting in Kuwait? What kind of stuff were you even doing? Uh, we got there. Oh, shit. Early June. June, I think. Just training. Basically nothing. But so I got there. We got there in June. My son was born in September 21st, 91. I think I got back about September. First week of September. Second week of September. Something like that. Nice. We'll get, I'll get to that in a second. But so basically all we did was we would go out and we would go out to our positions where we, if something hit the fan, you know, where we would be deployed to on the Iraqi border, Kuwaiti border to stop the Iraqis from coming back in. So it was a pretty good ride about probably 20, probably an hour long in the tank driving up to those positions. Um, the good thing about it, we got to drive up through the, the uh, highway of highway to death where they, they straight everybody coming in the air force. Yeah. Killed just everybody. I mean, there was tanks sitting on the back of hats with people still in them. And it was, it was pretty gruesome to be seen for the you know first time in your life to ever see that. But after you saw it for a few days, you're like, yeah, okay. So it's just another body. In you. Yeah. But it was nice the highway to hell. I think it was called highway to hell. Um, to see that, be part of that history, stuff like that. And then after that, it was just basically training. I mean, we would literally be training, you know, down on the ocean with the tanks, different positions. I'll never forget, we were driving along the beach 
in our tank doing something as a platoon and I was all the way the one closest to the ocean and we hit a landmine and it wasn't a big landmine it was a small landmine but my driver was a black guy or my gunner was a black guy and that son of a bitch I swear to god I, I he was about right to here coming out of that tank trying to get out of that tank when that landmine went off he had wanted no part of that to be inside the tank when the landmine went off I'm like dude relax it's it was just a little bang we're good got out there's not even a mark on the tank of course that took like a a week of showing everybody where it was what happened yeah you know all that stuff was supposed to be cleared already so be, to be safe to be cruising around on of course you know so that was kind of fun and then of course july 11th was the doha dash if you ever get a chance look that up uh that's when uh second second squadron 11th acr blew up their motor pool <laughs> Um, just look it up one time. It's pretty, pretty good read and it's a pretty good videos out there. So that was pretty, pretty scary because you got, um, a whole squadron of 155 millimeter ammunition holders, the howitzers fully low, fully uploaded, ready to go to war. All the tanks uploaded and all the ammo was in the motor pool next to these vehicles. And it took one howitzer to start on fire. And it was just a chain reaction down the line of continuously blowing up. At the time, nobody knew it, but it was, you know, when we, I had got my crew just out of the motor pool when the first one exploded. And it was just like a, it got dark because it was the white phosphorus over everybody's head that no one knew. And then fast cams falling all over the place, like raining fast cams. And you guys are just you know, breathing it in, soaking yeah, it up. And nobody knew it, you know, and that, that's something I never, I keep reading these because I belong to a, like we all do these different yeah. on Facebook that it's actually something I need to, I can go back and revisit on my uh, uh, disability because I never claimed it, but it, it's out there and you can claim it as being, being there that day because of all the depleted uranium that was, we were exposed to and just all the stuff we were exposed to. Thank God we didn't lose any lives during that explosion, but we ended up losing three EOD soldiers during the cleanup. Oh, bummer. The dude was carrying a 155 that they thought had no, was nothing wrong. But I guess when he moved it, it rearmed it or something and blew up when he was holding it. So, mm. but that was the highlight of that tour. And, and that, you know, that, that, uh, so I get back to Germany and, you know, we're resetting, doing everything we need to do to get ready to, for the next mission, of course. And my wife, you know, nine months pregnant. <laughs> so they're like, you know, they want, well, back then we did courtesy patrol out on the economy. We had to go down to the German bars. So, uh, you know, my wife's in the, we go to the hospital for a daily checkup and they're like, nah, yeah, she, it's time to go to the hospital and check in. I'm like, what? So we get her checked in. I had duty that night. She's like, no, go ahead. I'm okay. It's, I think I'll be okay. I'm, I don't think it'll come till tomorrow. So I'm out on, I do courtesy patrol the night before I get to the hospital the next day. And of course, Taylor's born the next day. So that was my highlight of my tape. I always have a good little courtesy patrol story to tell the night my son was born. The next day, my son was born. I actually yeah. had to pull him out with a vacuum cleaner. His, his ass was so big. <laughs> <laughs> it looked like a big vacuum cleaner that they put on his head and just pulled him out. So, That's awesome. Did he have like this nice big cone head then? Yeah, he did. Actually, it took, I'm like, is that going to stay? No, it'll go back. It'll go back. God, it's crazy the uh, the things they'll do to get a baby out. 
you know, oh, Charlie and Adam, Charlie, Arlen, yeah, they can't, right. They expire. Uh, that damn placenta just stops feeding them. But like our last guy, Charlie, who's an 11 Bravo in Afghanistan. Now that was his first duty as an air force medic was to go to labor and delivery in Japan. And just oh. thinking about like, like, no, no, I wouldn't want anything to do with that. Even after having one kid, it's like, no, that's, that's, that's enough for me. They thought I was, they thought I was nuts. Cause I was over there, you know, when they lay the placenta out cause they have to inspect it to make sure it's normal, you know, nothing wrong. I'm over there looking at it and taking pictures. They're like, what's wrong with this dude? <laughs> it's your first kid. You know, you don't, chances are you'll never see that again unless, you know, you have more kids, but you know, when's the chance you'll see a placenta laid out? That's that's thing. funny. The, yeah, the placenta's <laughs> the placenta's got to be like the first sergeant of the whole operation in there, right? Like, uh, hey, you will get nutrients. We're sending them down. Yeah. Yeah, that's, <laughs> that's <crazy>. funny. <laughs> a little foreshadowing. Yeah. Well, that's cool. So then, man, what a trip! Like, are you? You're probably 21 years old, maybe. Uh, 21, 22. 91. 84. I was 18. Oh, so you had a decent amount of time. Yeah, I'm 25 now. You got your wife, you got a kid, you're in Germany, you got yeah. a deployment technique. You, you, right now, most guys would say, all right, my career is complete. I've, I, you know, I've gotten what I need out of the army. I've got enough stories to tell. I can look good at the VA when I show up with all my cool guy shit on. Yep. That's uh, promoted while I was in desert storm, which so, you know, I was, I was happy. I was never thought I'd make it that far. So, and then we get back and then after Taylor's born, in Germany, once you get, because, you know, the, the turnover is a lot easier, you know, your replacement actually comes in and you actually see them, you oh, know, so your replacement comes in, you, okay, you're here, yep, here's your tank, so then they're like, what do you do with the next guy? So I ended up back in the early room, <laughs> so, because I had experience with that, and then, so with the SMA, of the first arm Preston, so I'm maybe the Army time now, or then, whatever, put me back in there with him, so that was good, because I got to learn it a little bit more as an NCO part of the side of the house. And now we had, we're getting up to a little bit computers, not full blown computers yet, but you know, a little bit more tech. So, and then from there I moved to Fort Knox, which is every tanker's dream assignment to get, to go back to Fort Knox after they left there as a private. Well, do you mind if I walk it back a bit? Because like, I don't know that everybody gets the opportunity to have served with somebody who reached Sergeant Major of the Army, let alone work directly for them. And one of the things I noticed about usually the guys working in the orderly room is that it seemed like it didn't have all the, um, I don't know, maybe the military manners or, or like, it, it seemed like people were trying to get work done without pulling rank in front of each other. And I'm kind of curious, like, what were some of the things about that particular individual that you think set him up well to become the Sergeant Major of the Army? Like what were some of the things he was doing well that you picked up on and, and took on to you that you think paid off in his career? Oh, he was so organized. Like, I think we got along good because we both had OCD. So he was very, because prior to him becoming our first Sergeant, he was the Regimental Master Gunner. Um, so he was already an expert in tanks. And prior to that, he was an instructor at the Master Gunner School. Oh, wow. So for us, even, and, you know, nobody knew he was going to become the SMA, but he, he was so diverse in that tank that when we would go to gunnery, we would spend hours and hours on training, just classroom stuff that was good to know, good to know information. And it was not mandatory. It was like, you know, he would be like, hey, I'm going to do 
a class tonight at seven o'clock. You're more than welcome to come. You don't want to come. You don't have to. Ninety percent of the gunners came. Yeah. Because you just want to give them that respect. But one, you want to learn. So he was so diverse. He he would um, he would let you do your job. He never micromanaged. He would just give you the job, the duty, and then he, he would do it and he would check on it. But he just had everything to him was a, a, a systems. It was all about systems. You know, it wasn't just winging it. It was all about systems. So if you had a system in place, it was easy. Things would just, once you've done it the first time, the next time it made it easier, next time even more easier. So for him, it was systems. Yeah, that's awesome. Even in the civilian world now, um, you know, in the past 10 to 15 years, getting to know as I've navigated my career and, um, some of the systems you can set up in place still carry that, that attitude still works. It's like, if we have a good system and we have a good culture, we're going to have a winning environment. It's just going to happen. We'll get the results that we want. Yeah. Yeah, So, you know, the military decision-making process and reverse planning, stuff like that helps you, helps you out later in life. Absolutely. Um, And it's definitely encouraging to hear, uh, you know, the approach that a future Sergeant Major of the Army took to professional development because I think I think that alongside with like some of the technical expertise you're kind of alluding to the the master gunner stuff how just incredibly intensely um like academic that stuff really is I think a lot of people who haven't served specifically near armor sorts of uh MOS qualified folks have no clue yeah yeah and he was very instrumental in me going to Fort Knox because he was very hands-on with his NCOs. So if you wanted to go somewhere, um, and, and prior to him being the first sergeant, he was a regimental master gunner. So he had a lot of knowledge of the system and how to use the system to help soldiers. So I wanted to go to Fort Knox. He was going to Fort Knox. Um, so we continued our friendship at Fort Knox, at even when we, when I got to Fort Knox, he had helped me get my assignment there. Well, what did he help you get your assignment was? Let's take us through the transition there. Um, well, he had already left prior to me leaving. So he was already there a couple months. And like I said, my ex-wife and his wife were very good friends. So, you know, we ended up, you know, spending some time staying with him for a while till we got quarters at Fort Knox. But we ended up, um, he ended up getting me assignment with, with teaching tanks to privates. So for my first, uh, I think couple, six, seven months, maybe it was at Fort Knox, I was, I was an instructor teaching privates on the tank. Um, and then after that, they were looking for um, volunteers to stand up a new company to teach the M1A2 tank, the M1A2 tank to the Saudi Arabians who had bought the tank from us back in the 92 93 timeframe. So I immediately raised my hand for that project um, to me, which, which was, which was awesome. It helped me make some first class. I think. Well, for sure. I, I think that like, as I've tracked some of my peers careers, if they've, you know, moved their way up and uh, I think most of my friends are sitting around Sergeant first class. I've got a couple guys that are master sergeants, but um your E6 to E7 transition seems like you got to do something different. You're either a cadre, you're a drill sergeant, you go to recruiter duty, like one of those things has to happen. So like, you know, so it seems like you got picked up for cadre duty. Um, 
under the attention of, of was it Sergeant Major Preston or at the time he was first Sergeant Preston? Yeah. Yep. That, that yeah, you have to have the experience there. Yeah, and you hit the and you and I was you know he's. I was one of the few. I'm one of the few in the in the army at the time in the army that made Sergeant Major without doing a drill sergeant or recruiting duty. I, I did it the base you know the old fashioned way. We just stay stay in the line and do stay on the line basically the whole time. I mean, I guess I was a cadre, which I believe helped. Um, but the duty that, <clears throat> and I know I'm jumping ahead, but the duty that really put me over the top was being the HHT first sergeant in the first of the 11th. Yeah. That by far set me up to be a sergeant major. Yeah, for sure. It's funny, you know, thinking back career-wise, you know, as I've seen people excel and jump through, all the little things that help them get to where they're going. I remember my roommate early on when we were still privates, uh, his name was Titus Kamau and he was this Kenyan guy. And we went to basic together. We went to AIT together. And one of the lucky things he got to do was go run the army 10 miler. And at the time, the commander of the HHT unit, I think it was captain Byron or something along those lines. Um, but he was a guy who was really interested in running things like that. So like Kamau goes out, does really well. With the army. Remember Kamau. And come out, you know, so then he comes back and all of a sudden he's starting to get awards. And it was nice because me, Kamau, and Sergeant Fernandez were all a part of the same team. And so at some point we were all 300 guys. We'd all done Soldier of the Month. We were just this tight little thing. And I think that, you know, you mentioned earlier when people go to the boards, the person who brings them to the board matters. And I think that like when when Sergeant Fernandez, you know, Special Promotable Fernandez walked through the door, I, you know, my number was probably up before it even happened. I just had to basically deliver what he had promised. But, you know, those little things you do in your career that, that help you get to where you want to go. Yeah. No, I, you know, I remember Kamal. And I, yeah, I remember exactly what you're talking about. Yeah, he's an E8 now. He's, he's I think, about two years shy of being able to retire if he wants to, but oh, he wow. won't. Because, he, you know, he did the Army soccer team for many years in a row. Um, did a lot of really cool stuff. That's crazy. Yeah. You can remember that guy that long ago. No, I because I, when you start, when you first said it, I was like, no. And then when you said running, I was like, yep, I remember come out. I just remember him out doing PT and I remember him going to the 10 miler. So I remember Kamau when I did, got my first 300, I came across and I think like 1239. And as I'm coming down the hill, making my right turn down by the airfield, I remember he came back and got me and ran me in the last quarter of a mile. He finished at 1005. So he finished, he got a chance to get his breath back and then he came back to get me to bring me in. Yeah, that's crazy. He was just, what a great guy. The solid battle buddy. I had a, uh, I served with a Kamau too. He was a fister and we were in the same truck for a while during my second deployment. And I don't know if he passed the PT test in his army career. <laughs> <laughs> so Kamau, if you're out there listening, <laughs> whichever one you are, <laughs> like, I hope well, everything's I, great. <laughs> I had the benefit for our HHT company command or um, first sergeant when I got there it was first Sergeant McCray. And uh, he was, I think he was kind of an old school guy. Cause an idiot. I remember when I came in and I got that 300, I was still a bit heavy. I think like I was supposed to waste 179, but I came in at about 184, um, which the new PT test, I'm curious how my body would have done with that. Cause I think it would have been good for, but uh, I remember the moment he saw the PT score next to like the weight. He's like, why why am I seeing this? Why should I care about this? Exactly. Like, what do I have to sign to get this out of my face right now? No, I, I remember McCray. He was, he was good. He was, I think he was, yeah, which troop did he have before he moved to HHT? I can't remember. 
or I think he might've been HHT when I met him. Yeah, he was HHT when I got there. But I remember he was a guy who like did the thing where he, I think at the time he was a Mason, you know, he did a lot of those other networking things that were really smart career was. I think he went to the Academy. Good for him. Well, hey, before we get too far away from it, I'm curious about what else makes Fort Knox uh, and returning to Fort Knox after training, you know, as your duty assignment as a tanker so special. Because it's where you went to basic. And so you just kind of get a redo on everything, but like actually knowing your job or is it nostalgia? Or? Um, well, you get to now instill your knowledge on that young private that is one day going to replace you, you know, in your job. So it's, to me, it was that. It was being able to go in. It was a breather. First of all, it was a, was a little breather to, to take a breather away from the uh, your day, daily jobs as a tanker. But now to be able to instill some of your knowledge back onto the, the force coming into the Army. I was like feel like, through, sorry, go ahead, Will. Do you feel like your appreciation for training others was something that, you gained during that time or that was instilled in you beforehand or tell me where you kind of developed that. I think it was always in my, my body to instruct, um, or in my, my will to always instruct. Um, cause I was too, always very, very good at doing stuff step by step. So to be an instructor for me in the tank world was easy because everything had to be done a, B, C, D. You couldn't skip a step. Otherwise, something would go wrong in, in the system or, you know, on the tank. You know, you couldn't skip the Z before you went to A because it just wouldn't work. So for me, it was easy because when I was a tank commander, your crew is your responsibility. So those three guys, it's your responsibility to mold those three. So I always, to me, it always pissed me off, but it, it makes you feel good at the same time was my crew would always get stolen by the commander or the XO um, or the platoon leader because he'd be like, hey, I'm going to take your driver. Well, why? Because he's good. And I'm like, well, yeah, because I trained him. Well, yeah, thank you. So, you know, so yeah, you're pissed, but at the same time, you're like, okay, well, give me the next guy. So that, that was, it was kind of like, I guess, ingrained in me. You bet. That's great so that, that opportunity then, because, you know, you could imagine all the guys that go through the military career and don't necessarily get a chance to play their strengths, and you got to play your full hand at coming back to the schoolhouse. And and, and I, I didn't want to be a drill sergeant because I just, I don't know. I mean, I did, but I didn't want to go through the schooling part of it. So to be an instructor, I got to deal with the drill sergeant on a daily basis. So I got to be, you know, go over and hang out with them and, and uh, kind of help um, mold private. <laughs> so it was fun to be able to do that. All right, there's a story. Without the, without the brown round. Privates without doing that, without having a story. Like, yeah. There's got to be something in there. What's a good story about a way that you helped mold a young mind? Oh, just pickup days. I mean, you could we could sit here for hours just on pickup days. Um, <laughs> just pickup days were a blast. I mean, you would. Yeah. Um, the, just the one that always sticks out is, is we had a, we always had a dolly at pickup day for bags, but we would end up putting a private, you know, one private. You'd always see that one lazy private or one private that just couldn't carry his bag, 
So you'd have another private, go put the other private on the dolly and then take that private into the <laughs> barracks. So, you know, stuff like that was always fun. Um, yeah, just, just stories like that. I mean, just watching the drill sergeants just destroy a private. It's just when you're not on the receiving end, you're like, oh, okay, yeah. <laughs> I think I got lucky early on that I think I was already keen to the game. So I just laid low and tried to play it well, but some dudes, when they came off the cattle car or the bus and they hit that big swarming pool of sharks, like it really affected them. Oh yeah. Yeah. Because some people don't like first, they don't like people in their face and they don't like the idea of being told what to do. So it's all a mind game. All that a target rich environment. I think the fourth wall for me was a little broken because like I happened as we were walking into the starship into the like middle of the CTA. um, I noticed somebody in BDUs up on sort of the second floor with like a little handy cam. And I'm like, Oh, it's about to go down. You know, I better (laughs) just like (laughs) be be on the lookout. But my bladder was really full and it was like um, May in Georgia. So I was just like, okay, I have, there's a very real possibility I could pee my pants, but I just like, there couldn't be a worse time. So just keep it, keep it locked up. Oh yeah. You and I was going to ask if you can use the restroom. Cause that ain't going to yeah, happen. Yeah. Yeah. I was just going to, I determined to sweat it all out at that point. Oh yeah. So what comes after Fort Knox in, in your career progression? So let me see. Fort Knox. Oh, Korea. So I asked, so by now I'm a starting first class. And I'm like, well, hey, I want to go to Fort Riot or Fort Carson because I had some friends over there. Good assignment. Yeah. Good, good, good place to be. And they're like, sure, you can have Fort Carson, no problem. But you're going to do a year in Korea first. Huh. You know, that was that one assignment that you never wanted, ever wanted, because it was just, I, it was just nothing but horror stories for Korea. But for me, it was. Once again, it was another assignment I, I really enjoyed. It was um, my first job as a platoon sergeant in a tank com- tank troop, and um, couldn't ask for a better place to go train. Um, four gunneries a year, and because you're your constant turnover of soldiers. Um, but the good thing is, most 80% of my platoon all came in at the same time. So wow. I got I had my platoon almost from start to finish for me getting to Korea and leaving Korea. So I, I couldn't ask for a better place to, to break in as a platoon sergeant. So what are some things to do in Korea and what are some things not to do in Korea? Drink soju is the one thing not to do. <laughs> um, I mean, travel. I mean, when I was there, you, you had to be back in by midnight back into the post by midnight, unless you had an overnight pass. Because where I was stationed, it was up north up in Gary Owen. So we, we had a lot of restrictions on us. Um, but just to travel, you know, go to Seoul and different parts of Korea. Um, and it was, once again, it was easy to get around in Korea. Um, the trains were very, very easy to use. And then they had a pretty good bus system for the soldiers mm. that would take you to... Uh, to all the different posts, and then from there you could you know do different things. But I mean, it this was is about ninety four, uh, ninety So, what was the best food you had in Korea? You know, I think of going to a place like South Korea, like their technology is pretty advanced, their food's pretty advanced. Bogi, uh, bogi and rice. 
Yeah, I've heard bulgogi, but not kugogi. No, not 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 k doggy. Yeah. <laughs> no, bulgogi was probably the best food, and and of course, you know, you can have the, the best part about it over there is you can run a tab, you know, and you pay it once a month or once a week, however you want to do it. Nice. But yeah, I was you know they deliver right to your room, <laughs> so, but yeah, it was the food was great. I mean, looking back so at what- it. Good. What is that? What's the difference between those two things? But what well, it, I, I just don't even think strips, strips of beef, marinated, and then um, you know your typical uh, stir fry stuff mixed in with it, and then you can either use it on rice or noodles. Very tasty, I thought. Um, K doggy is a fucking dog. Yeah. Literally, literally, there was yeah, yeah, that was that was a thing. So, you know, that's you one literally of the things. Literally, we're out. I bought a bike while I was there because we would do a lot of biking up in the mountains and stuff like that. A bunch of friends of us. Um, we would, we stopped at this, this guy one day was like grilling. It looked like he was doing something. We were like, Hey, what are you doing? Oh, come on over. And he lifted it up and there's a fucking dog head in there boiling. I'm like, Oh, hell no. No. Is, uh, is dim sum, is that Korean? I don't know. How about kimchi? Kimchi is, yeah. Yeah, kimchi is for sure. Well, one of the things I've heard that's really big in Korea now, I don't know if it was big when you were there, but like as opposed to Kentucky fried chicken, Korean fried chicken is a thing. And it's supposed to be pretty damn good. Well, I probably had it. Probably had it when I was down in Seoul. We would eat a lot of stuff down in Seoul. Um, I do remember eating something fried like that. Yeah, cool. I don't remember the name of it though. So what are your impressions of that city? Seoul? Yeah. Overcrowded. In 1998, it's yeah. overcrowded? Oh, yeah. Yeah, it was so, crazy. Was it yeah. a one-year tour for you or two? Yeah, it's a one-year. It was a one-year. Okay. I wasn't sure with family and stuff like that. You I think. Bring, it depended on where you were assigned that you could bring your family, but you would do another year or two, depending. Like the so, CSMs, the first sergeants, and the commanders, they normally would all do two to three years. Because for a captain, the command is two years. Yeah. So, you know, for them to just leave after one is not going to happen. So you got in and you got out of Korea clean? Yeah. Yeah. Nice. Well, you always hear this stuff. You know, you look at the news and they'll be like, oh, curfew is instituted in Korea because Air Force airmen stole a taxi and was found in the Seoul airfield. And you're like, what? What is this guy thinking? They always say the best way to make E6 is to go to Korea and E7. <laughs> so, but no, Which you yeah, did and survived it somehow. No, I did. I survived. Yeah, there was, it was fun. There was, there was fun, but it was, it was exciting. But then you end up at a place that I put on my dream sheet, you know, one of those stupid recruiter things. It's like, oh yeah, we'll listen to what you think. And like writing Fort Carson down and really like believing that might happen, which it didn't. But like, so then next time you, was it uh third ACR, Brave Rifles? Is yeah, that, ended up in uh, third ACR. So I get there in late 99 and they're ramping up for Bosnia. So I get there and, uh, you know, senior NCO, go see the regimental sergeant major. And he's like, if you want to go to Bosnia, I'll take you. But I, I really, I mean, I have to give you time back here in the States. So you don't have to go if you don't want to. I'll assign you here to regiment. You can be my uh, my school's NCO. So I'm like, yeah, okay, that works for me because I really didn't want to go. They were already ramping up, 
Um, you know, everybody pretty much had their, you know, I didn't want to take a platoon sergeant out of his job um, in the middle, right while they were ramping up, ready to roll. So I was like, no, nah, I'm good. So I stayed there, stayed the school's NCO for about a less than a year, maybe a little over a year. And then um, my, my first sergeant at Fort Knox made Sergeant Major, and he was the squadron sergeant major for third ACR, three, third squadron, third ACR. He needed a first sergeant for one of his companies, for his company, his only company, um, tank company, and he, um, he pulled me down as a sergeant first class. So I got to be the, um, the company first sergeant as a sergeant first class. So that was, that was exciting. It's pretty big deal. Cut my I mean, teeth as a senior sergeant first class, I guess you could say, as a, as a first sergeant. Well, that's I, one of the things I that like. A junior, I was a junior sergeant first class, but I got to be a first sergeant. Well, that's what I was going to hit on is like, unless you know the culture of the military, there are so many times that I think that you're maybe not ill-prepared, but you're going to go and you're going to take a jump, whether it's, whether somebody goes as a corporal and, and does that job, you know, but, but you as a, as a junior E7, all of a sudden you're kind of thrust into this position that some of that stuff kind of happens and you just got to buck up and figure it out. Oh yeah. I mean, I asked for it. So, and, and I was, cause I knew I had him as if it would have been another star major that I didn't know. I mean, yeah, I probably would have did it, but with him, I already, I already worked for him for two years so as a first, he was a star first class. He was a first sergeant. So I already knew him. It was easy to transition to be a, a young sergeant first class into a first sergeant because I had him to lean on if I needed help with something. I knew I wasn't just going to get thrown to the wolves and, you know, end of my career. <laughs> uh, and so many, so many lower enlisted have no idea that like the, the people that are running the entire squad and the people that are running the regiments, these guys have probably known each other for 10 to 15 years Oh yeah. and privates, you just don't know it. You're not, you have no idea that that's how it's working yet. Easily. Yeah. It's funny. I think, uh, I think it's a small army after all, pretty tight knit community. And, and that realization takes a few years to dawn on folks for sure. Yeah. But I want to comment on a, a couple of points that you guys raise is sort of uh, the first thing is like, Adam, I, maybe you had a similar experience, but a lot of my training was kind of like see one, do one, teach one, you know, it's like, and now you're an expert, but uh, you get, you have to continue practicing those things because you know when it comes down to your job you're supposed to know you know um the guy above you get his job and and the two guys below you right but i think like those attitudes carried forward from the army like definitely beneficial and something that not many people consider yeah because when so i was the first arm for a year as a sergeant first class and then a a master sergeant came in first sergeant and the first and the sergeant major was like, he's like, look, I'm gonna, I got this guy, I gotta put him in position as much as I want to keep you. I said, so what troop do you want to go to? And I'm like, what do you mean? He goes, I can't keep you in the same company. I can't keep you in the tank company as a platoon sergeant after being the first sergeant. And I'm like, come on, Fred. Really? I mean, just give me the chance. If, if you see me, if you see me overpowering this guy, you know, not you know doing what I'm supposed. to and you can move me. He goes, okay, I'll give you the opportunity. So he, I got to stay there as a platoon sergeant. And it took a little while to transition, not for me, for the soldiers, to transition that I wasn't the first sergeant anymore. 
and now I have as a platoon sergeant, which was fun. I mean, it was the funnest thing, you know, to be another platoon sergeant again, because chances are most times you get to do it once and it's on to the next job, it's on to the next job. So you don't get to do it a lot. So I got to be another platoon sergeant for another two years um, before I PCS out the border one, of course. I have to say, as a guy who worked for you, I cannot imagine many people taking greater joy out of you probably transitioning down and being like, nope, that is his shit. You take that problem to him. Yeah. No, I. And not in a bad way, but just being no, like, I, mean, I was have there to help him. So I was, you know, there to help him. We became good friends. Because it was funny. It was because my next assignment was then the National Training Center. He had just come from the National Training Center. Ah, okay. So when I got, so of course the war kicked off in what, 2003. Yep. I was already on assignment. And I was on a level one assignment and I could not get out of it. Even the regimental commander couldn't get me out of it um, because NTC, of course, needed people. It, so he's like, no, I can't get you out of it. Sorry, you got to go. And so this the other first sergeant, he had already came from there. So he was, you know, telling me, look, you know, you know, you're, you're, you'll be okay out there. You'll, you'll do fine. And here's the things to do. Here's the, the things to do. So it, it was an easy transition for me to move out to the NTC for me anyway. And with my experience, observer controllers were kind of like, like there's nothing closer to God in like a, a fake battle space. Like I remember they held the miles gun and just would, you know, Oh yeah. Would, yep. You're done. Yeah. But one That's of your questions were, where, where was I for nine 11 was I was there at Fort Irwin or I mean Fort Carson and I'll never forget. I mean, it was, we were doing PT. We got done. On PT, and then we actually played football that day. And I don't you know, I like to do my sports. So I get, I go to my apartment, change. I'm on the way back, or I'm leaving the house, and I, the news is on, and I something's happening, not really paying attention. United States, you know, nothing's gonna happen. Yeah. Well, so about halfway down the road back to the fort, I hear the United States is under attack. So I'm like, so the line to get back in the in the Fort Carson was like unbelievable. People, we had an interstate. Where Carson's wrapped around an interstate on the out on the side of it, so everybody's out on the interstate waiting, trying to get on post. They're like really screening everybody all of a sudden. Jeez. So the first thing we do is we get in there. I'm still the first sergeant. Is you know we like, I remember stuff from Germany. <laughs> is you know the first thing you do is take the phones away from everybody because cell phones were, yeah, cell phones were in. Yeah, we had cell phones by then. Yeah. Um, but they weren't as. Like, advanced as they were now in text messaging and all that stuff they were just cell phones so first thing to do is take all the phones away so people weren't calling people and you know stuff like that but that's i remember that very clearly that day did you guys even have like a, a contingency plan in place for like a, a world event like this or like no. at that point were you guys just scrapping to figure out what's the smartest thing we can do to have good uh information security it was yeah just basically information and getting out the most up-to-date information so that families weren't, you know, freaking out because, you know, because there was like, you know, hundreds of stories about, you know, there's planes heading this, this direction, that direction. Yeah. And being in Fort Carson, we had, we had the, uh, uh, shit, what's it called? The mountain, uh, where everything was inside that mountain. Yeah. Right there. So it was a prime target. Oh, is that a Cheyenne mountain? That Cheyenne yeah, stuff. the Cheyenne Mountain where every the nuclear stuff is all stored. And of course, it's not stored there no more. 
Um, but Cheyenne Mountain was a huge target because it had it was a part of the Air Force. Had there was some big, big secret shit going on inside that mountain. So it was a you know we were really worried that it, we could be a Fort Carson would have been a, could have been a target. It could have been, and that's one of the things when I think I wasn't I hadn't enlisted yet. Um, I just graduated high school and I was working at a, at a motocross track next to a massive nuclear plant. And I remember my boss at the time was up in Milwaukee for a Brewers game for the weekend or for the week. And he called down and he's like, Hey, have you seen what's going on on TV? And I'm like, is that a trick question? No, I'm working for you. <laughs> and then like he got, you know, his tone all of a sudden got really serious over the phone. And he's like, if the FBI, CIA, et cetera, shows up, give them the four wheelers, whatever they need to be able to like, make sure they can get on the outskirts of their property. Cause we're right next to them. We border, you know, they're going to want our stuff. And sure enough, I got a little curious and rode the four wheeler up through a trail right under the edge of the property. And it was a blacked out suburban with blacked out windows sitting right there. And I'm just like, you know, at the time I was like Homer Simpson going back into the, the hedgeway there. And I just wow. kind of turned around and went back. I was like, well, okay, if they want shit, they'll come get it. But, yeah. but like then thinking like you're next to this massive nuclear thing that um, is just such a target rich thing. Yeah. Yeah. It was huge. I mean, you're like really worried, you know, for the first couple of days anyway, until you figure out what's really going on. Yeah. You got a wife, you got a kid. How old's your kid at this point? Oh, I'm single now. So I'm single. Taylor's, Taylor's living in Wisconsin. He's, okay. uh, shit, what, 2001? So he's 10, 10 years old, 91. Yeah. 10 years old. Yeah. When the planes hit. So yeah. So yeah. So what changed, what changed for you besides sort of being acutely aware that, you know, you're on a military installation near other high value military installations? What changed for me is in what way you mean? So you'd had a, you'd already had like a pretty long, pretty accomplished career to that point. You mentioned immediately taking some OPSEC measures and like feeling a little anxious about what might be vulnerable around you. But what other changes did you notice in sort of like the operations there with your unit and uh, on the wider post in the following days and months? Um, well, the biggest thing was security. I mean, security tightened up unbelievably. I mean, we basically, we basically shut down training and went to nothing but security of securing the fort, you know, of the gates because you know, unless you're at Fort Irwin, there ain't but one gate. <laughs> so, yeah. um, it was basically nothing but securing gates and how to secure the gates. And then once you secured them, who do you let in and who do you not let in? You know, because it is a military installation, and you know, it's more than just military work at military installations. So that was the biggest thing was just rolling out a plan of of um, securing the fort was the number one. Priority. So what, what what kind of time what kind of time scale did that fall into? And then as other units sort of like spun up, even though it took a few months, as they started spinning up towards like deployments in Afghanistan in particular, what sort of shifted around where you were in the army? Nothing really that I can, nothing that jumps out at me. Basically just our number one mission was we had a gate, our squadron had a gate and, and that was it. Um, if we weren't on the gates, we were, I, I believe we were qualifying, you know, making sure everybody was qualified on the weapon systems. Um, 
Yeah, that's tough too. Cause like you've got this natural process you guys have to do to stay battle ready. But yeah. at the same time, if you took an entire squadron allocated them to one entry point in the gate, I have no idea how you're going to be able to pull it off. Yeah, because we, I, I remember we were at gunnery when the new first arm came in, you know, and I was like, you know, relieved in one hand, but saddened at the next. I was like, here, dude, you can have this shit. I mean, because there's a lot going on. Um, have at it. You know, I'll, you know, of course, I'm going to help you, but oh, here you go. You know, so. <laughs> So that was, yeah, it was just. You know, what can you yeah. do but laugh at it, though? Like, what can you do but laugh at some of the ridiculousness of that? Being able to say, dude, I don't, I have no idea what's happening. I can't even give you the best report because it just changed so quick. So good yeah. luck. Figure it out. Yeah, because we still, like you said, we still had to be ready just in case something did. You know, and of course, a couple of years later, it did. But yeah, it was basically training. And then, um, I know it really got real when I, re- I became friends with a, a bunch of the captains that were up at the, um, the regimental S3 shop with me. All the, the, It was kind of like these captains would come in, they would stay there for four or five months, and then they would, they would go command at a troop, and then there they would leave. So I had become friends with a couple of these captains. And one of the c- captains, he went down, he commanded, and then he went off to the major's course can't remember what it was called back then. And then all of a sudden he's back at the regiment and we're like, Hey, what is Charlie Costanza doing back here? And everybody's like, um, uh, nobody knows. They just take him and they lock him in the skiff every morning and they bring up, they let him out at five o'clock at night. So once it was over and I mean, once I met him later, he had told me he was doing the battle plans for OIF. Wow. So they brought him out of school because he was so, good at what he did they had picked handpicked him to come back to the regiment and start working the battle command battle plans for the initial push into iraq the first oif wow that's nuts what a responsibility that could have been and like how isolating could you have possibly felt because there's so many so much information you're getting that you can't share with anybody no locked in a skiff all day because he couldn't either man we would see him after duty hours and be like hey sir what's going on don't even ask. Don't even yeah. talk to me about anything at work. <laughs> so yeah, I was, and that's when you knew something was about to happen. <laughs> and then of course I had to leave, go to Fort Irwin. What's the skiff? The uh, secured compartment It's just a big vault yeah. where all the top secret shit is held. And it's, it's just the, where they do the war plans. You have the secret documents. That's yeah. that's jogging my memory. I appreciate that. Yeah, all secret in a bulb. Yeah. Yeah, there's some popular photos out there. I I don't remember if it was the um, the Bin Laden raid, but you'll see them all inside one of the skiffs in the White House and and doing one of those things. Sensitive compartmented information facility. Yeah. Yeah, that's. Yeah. That's what I had guessed. And the other one was no red. No red. Was it yeah, Cheyenne Mountain. Mountain. Cheyenne Mountain. Oh. Dude, what a change that must have been all of a sudden, like uh, shit's getting hot. You're seeing it all. And they're like, yeah, you're going to go and do this incredibly lonely mission over at NTC. Yep. And that was my next assignment. So yeah, I moved to pick everything up while all my buddies are heading off to war and they're like, shit. Well, yeah, kind of, they didn't know if they were going, they were ramping up for it. But then when we get, I got there, was moved to, uh, was on the Cobra team. 
which is for the, the armor trainers. And, um, and that's where we, that's when they first in, um, invaded the Afghanistan first, I believe it was. And then of course, all I have. How did that change how you guys function? I, I don't really know how, I mean, my experience at ops group, it was a bunch of E7s and above that seemed to go out and kind of, you know, play ref. But like at that point in time, clearly it wasn't like desert storm. It was going to be probably a different war. We were looking at Afghanistan as a battle space. Were you guys even, when did the transition occur? Was it when you were there? How, how did that look as far as how ops group started to train and, and prepare units? You know, it, it really didn't. So I got there, I believe it was like January. Cause I came to the regiment in January, I believe something like that. Well, anyway, so we just, we were continuing to do rotations cause they were already locked in, but we really never changed the way we did anything because the units that were already going to already preparing for war that were already got their war orders were as trained as they were going to be. Yeah. Cause it was a ground attack. So the ones that were, the ones that were picked to go were the ones that already had done a, an, an NTC rotation because I remember being in the third ACR. We had just, before I PCS, we had just left, we had just done a rotation. So I knew that's why the third ACR was picked because they had already been out there, been through a, a standard force on force mission. It wasn't until about eight months in is when we started switching stuff to the conventional, unconventional, you know, this towns and we started building the towns and stuff like that. I think about the eighth, eighth month into our tours into my OC. I only stayed in OC for a year. Okay. And then I moved made the made E8 like my fourth third month into the once I PCS I made the next E8 list which was right away. Cool. But Sergeant Major said you ain't going nowhere until you do a year and I was like, no, nah, not a problem. So then I, you know, got a job at the regiment you know, the following year in two thousand yeah, you talk about that transition. I remember I came over, I think October 2002 is when I came into reception at, um, with the regiment and, and made it over to 111. But I think it was probably at least a year, I want to say, before we started to build some of those different towns. And I remember even as a medic, like early on, we were doing more of a real, real world mission attached to you guys. But then all of a sudden, once it changed, it was just such a such a change of pace that it was really odd. I remember like uh, California congressmen would come in and want to watch wow. things. And I got coined by Paul Wolfowitz at one point during one of those rotations when he came out, when he was the deputy secretary of defense. Yeah. And it just seems all, it seemed all really surreal as far as to how the seriousness was and the transition and the change. Yeah. Cause me and Brian Vogel were both on the Cobra team together. And then we both, they made E8 together, but he came to the regiment like two months before I, three months before I did, and he ended up getting, I think it was Alpha Troop. Yeah. Ryan ended up with Alpha Troop. So when I was doing the OC and duties, that's when I, I would always find out where Brian was at and go find out what's going on with the buildup of the towns. And that's when you guys started building the towns. Yeah. And like when that. did he come over to HHT? Like, cause at some point. After, before we deployed, cause he, he wasn't happy about that. Cause he had built up Alpha. Ugh for the rotation for combat. And then he, then they moved into HHT and then alpha because well, alpha ended up going over to two eleven, and we ended up getting golf troop and one of the other troops. God, I forget the guy who was the first Sergeant of alpha. Maybe it was Delta. 
before before this whole thing kind of started to switch around, that dude was brutal. That was hard being a company medic for him. I felt like I had to have an hour of prep before I even walked into the orderly yeah, room. I, I know what you're talking about. I remember talking about it with you. I just can't remember what it was. I know Shit. Squires came over, and then there was me and Brian, and I can't remember the other first arms. So this is Ops Group, which is part of – uh, first Squadron, 11th ACR. Um, the Ops Group is Ops Group. Ops Group belongs to the National Training Center. They're the, okay. the observer controllers. Um, so I did a year there, and then I basically got went over to the regiment looking for a job. First Sergeant, or Sergeant Major hired me to come down to First Squadron and take over Bravo Troop. Um, so I did that in 2004. And that's a, that's a regular... It was a PCS because it was moving from um, one one unit to another, but it was a different take on So it was actual PCS for me. Even I see. So I guess just to further orient, orient folks who might not be familiar with Fort Orwin and NTC, yeah. like, can you talk about what goes on there? Well, yeah, I mean, it's, a, it's a, just a big training center. So it's the ops group is is the ops. They're, they're the ones that control the battles. They're the ones that facilitate the battle, and then the regiment is the one that actually plays the op four. So the regiment is the op four, and then you have it used to be I don't know what it is now. It's the sustainment brigade was nine nine sixteenth support brigade. They're the ones that do all your support for the you know the trucks and everything that happens around that no one ever notices you know what's going on ammo and all that good show stuff so that's basically that's what's made up of ntc there's really two brigades out there and then the ops group which is commanded by a commander a uh, fulbert colonel that's already out of command usually the ops group commander is coming out of he's already did a brigade command and now he was selected to, to do this job because he's already been a brigade commander because you're going to be training brigade commanders. So when a unit goes to NTC, what sort of tasks are they working on? Everything. Everything. All the way long. from the... From deploying, from the day you get on the ground, from receiving your equipment, prepping your equipment to take it in into the battlefield. Um, any training that still needs to be completed prior to going out, you know, ranges, um, Zeroing the tanks, zeroing your weapon systems, uh, everything. I mean, everything that you would do in a deployment, you would you would mock it at NTC in a thirty-day window. You would spend. So those o those OCs are they're evaluating everybody, right? From the lowest private to the most senior leader, coordinating yep. the most complicated stuff. So that's like that's when NTC and JRTC those training centers. Uh, that's those are the opportunities for, you know, folks to practice moving the big pieces around, right? Yep. Yeah, and there. And then, go ahead. And then from that, from the ops group, the OC team, you transition PCS to the regiment, which is op four there. Yes. Where you met Adam, so those, yeah. that's so your that role was playing bad guys. Let's yeah. make sure that we don't confuse the obvious that Specialist Howarth got to meet at the time First Sergeant Epler. 
there were not first names being thrown around casually. <laughs> yeah, great. Okay. Yeah. Okay, great. Oh, yeah. So the NTC is just a big training platform for anybody. Well, now it's training you to go to war, but in the past it would be just just training you on your basic, not basic, but your bigger plat, your bigger stages. You know, if, if the shit was, they hit the fan. But, of course, it did hit the fan, so now it's the training platform to go into combat. And yeah, you have a sergeant first class. Like for me, when I was a train, uh, uh, an OC, I had a platoon. I would pick that platoon up from the day they got to NTC till the day they got on the bus to leave. And I basically stayed with that platoon for three to four weeks. And I evaluated them. And more, you're more there to train them and help them instead of being, you know, the teacher or the school teacher, the principal. You're there. Mm-hmm. They look, hey, platoon sergeant. Because you've already been a platoon sergeant. Those are the guys. Guys that go there have already been platoon sergeants. Um, hey, look, this is here's some ways to do it. You can do it if you want. If you don't want to, that's your call. Okay, but when your platoon gets wiped out and they ask me why, I'm gonna say, Well, you know, I recommended this, and he basically said, Yeah, whatever, I'm gonna do it my way. And you get some guys that are very receptive, and then you get your guys that are like, No, I'm gonna do it my way. That's so all you can do is go, okay. You learn, you learn from your fault. You learn from your mistakes, hopefully. Yeah, and absolutely. Then, yeah, yeah. And then I transitioned to the regiment as a first sergeant for Bravo, Bravo Troop. And we did. When the magic happened. Yeah, that's when we, I was there about shit, six months. We were training and then all of a sudden, all of we got the call for every, all the first sergeants to come meet the commander. And next thing you know, we were being, de- we were being, Taking off rotations and uh, ramping up for war, which everybody was like, "No, that's that's not what I came out here for." I came out here to be the, the fake, the fake uh, enemy. I mean, well, no, you're going to be the real guy now. That's one of the funny things that I've ever had to say to my future first ex-wife was that, like, "No, honey, I'm non-deployable." Yeah. And then a couple months later, go, "Oh, hey, about that, uh, non-deployable." Going. To war and not only that, we're going to Solder City. <laughs> yeah, and I remember like the the so like I'd came across you um, with the Soldier of the Month thing, and I must have been a little bit further along than I thought I was. But the the first kind of real exposure was is I was supposed to be with um, Alpha or Delta. I can't remember now who I was going to be attached to, and be their senior medic. But uh, uh, the guy who was your senior medic at the time was out because he was uh, away on leave or something like that. And I came and filled in for one of the many, many things you do to prep every, everything before you go. And you guys must have had some downtime and you were like, well, let's go fuck with the medics. So you came over and were like, all right, congratulations. I'm going to give you the afternoon. You've got the rest of the day to do some, some sergeant's time or do something, but you got the whole company to train. And in my mind, I was like, well, I don't know anything because I haven't been down range yet. And the smartest thing I could do, you'd mentioned earlier, Sergeant Eaton, he is a guy who deployed an OIF-1. And I really quickly, respectfully pulled him off to the side and I was like, hey, I got to put on a thing, but I want to chat with you quick. We came up with a couple ideas, ran the company through some actually some pretty nice lanes as far as, I think there's a misunderstanding that the medic is going to treat and evacuate and do all these, call the nine line, all these things. But the reality is- yeah. I'm pretty busy when I'm busy and I'm going to need other people to be able to stand up and do a lot of other stuff. And I think that was one of the first times to where we, we realized that we weren't going to go on tanks. We're going to go on Humvees and then how can we best prep Humvees to do what we need to do? And I think a lot of guys were discouraged because they were on a different platform, 
But once the training picked up some speed and we really got some flow to it, I think guys really had a good time um, kind of getting a taste for it. Oh, yeah. And hitting the reality of what it was going to be like. And then then I get shuffled off. You know, I forged these really nice relationships with these guys. I get shuffled off and um, wished you guys well. But I, I remember thinking, like, at no point in time during my military career did somebody come over to me and say, hey, specialist nobody, I need you to put on a company-level training for me. And it was just one of those things that was, you know, I love being tossed the keys to the car because then we get to see how, how fast it goes um, and had a really good time with that. And then I got pulled over and, um, you know, I ended up coming back to the company and whatnot, but um, I thought that was just a super cool experience. And it set me up for knowing that like uh, at the time, the company I was going to go with, I, I had known more about yours and, and the way that things were running already. And I was like, these guys are going to be pretty well prepped to do what they have to do. Yeah. And that's, and that's why, when, when old dear Blodgett made the mistakes he did, that's why I went after you because you had already had a relationship with me and Captain Keyes, so it was easy. And, and it was easy to sell it to the Sergeant Major because we had a good working relationship. I, I had, had a good night. Relationship with the, the thought that it goes that high to get something approved, I remember distinctly after that happened, um, we were doing something in the middle of the night and you and I had to walk probably about three, 400 meters to get where we're, we had to go. And it was one of those times that now I've learned this is what's called an elevator pitch. And I remember at the time I was just like, I want the job. I'm well suited for the job. I know the guys. Um, and so I think for like the 30 to 60 seconds, I found a way to just like put in my interest and then get the fuck out of your way as fast as I could before, <laughs> before I was asked why I was walking on your grass. Yeah. No, it was, it was an easy decision. Cause it, like you said, you had already worked with us and um, captain keys was comfortable with you and, I mean, it was easy. It was an easy decision. Cool. Well, let's look back at it then. So we're, 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 uh, we're getting ready to roll out. Like I just had mentioned that we switched over to Humvees as opposed to tanks. Like when did you realize that the mission was going to be so different and how did you prepare your guys for that? Well, I, I think it was once we were told that we were not going to be on tanks, that we were going to be on trucks. So I think it was at the time it was really, lean in on the guys that had already been there once because we were what OIF three now yeah yeah so it was really leaning on the eatons and um I'm trying to remember a couple of the other guys i think it was hamador hamador and guardios guardiox or whatever his name was um but those guys it was leaning on those guys that hey you know what what was it like you know and then really leaning on them but it was it was more, the hardest part was to get guys mindsets that look, dude, you're not going to be on a tank. So get over it. I mean, the minute you can get that part of you taken away out of your mindset, like, look, you're not going to be on a tank no more. Look, you're going to have an M50, you're going to have a two, you're going to have a, a 50 caliber and dude, you're going to have a 240 Bravo. Okay. So get over it. I mean, that, that was the hardest thing with the, the staff sergeants was getting them and the platoon sergeants, mm -hmm. of course, to get their them to get their soldiers in the mindset that you're not going to have all this armor around you. Sorry. Um, so when we do go train, you gotta you gotta put it in. You gotta put in 100 percent because that vehicle is all you got. And, it's, and I think that's where we got lucky with some of the leadership being West Point guys. Like rarely are you going to hear that sentence come out of my mouth because of my feelings about West Point. But. Um, yeah. I love West Point, but you know, there's just a big attitude shift with the guys coming oh, yeah. out of this. But like they get exposed to a lot of stuff. Yeah, and I think was... once once we shifted to learning CQB and going out by Eastgate and doing some of those 
different sequencings that we did, whether it was paint guns and going to a live fire and things like that, those guys seem to come in with a lot more information about how to do that type of stuff. And I thought that was where some of those guys got to shine a lot. Oh yeah. And then it was like, you know, like you said, a lot of the guys, a lot of young E4s were now thrust into being, you know, some type of a gunner, whether a 50 cal gunner, a 240 gunner. I mean, we even qualified the Mark 19s, even though I don't think, I think we did take a few out. Yeah, they never got mounted. Transitioned away from them because they were not very trustworthy. Um, it was a quick way to get you guys in trouble. I remember shooting them. I remember. I remember we. I don't know if you were with us yet when we pulled into that one place in Taji. We used to go test fire in Taji. Um, I remember shooting the Mark 19s. No, I didn't come down in Taji yet. I was still with first okay. platoon. I was still with white, but oh. or sorry, second platoon white. But um, it was. It, that was the hardest part was just getting people's mindsets to, that you don't have this protection anymore. And now you're going to be on a truck. And oh, by the way, we don't know if you're going to have armored, off armored trucks, which we didn't. <laughs> we which is armor. Well, so. you're the guy that did it the, the longest in, um, you know, maybe, maybe catch us up before I start jumping in with some of these funny stories from Kuwait Northward, like anything else taking us from garrison environment to, uh, you know, going wheels up no i mean I, I i just you know me and the commander worked well together and we we complemented each other very well so it was you know, he did his thing he let me take care of the training and he just gave me the resources and i just grabbed the platoon sergeants and and we ran with it i think the i think once we were into the training and we got through the training i think it was just a matter of, let's just get there and get it over with yeah. So, I remember you guys were good about doing PT football. And like at the time, uh, HHT, that wasn't like a thing that they did. It was just too big of a, too big to try to pull something like that off. But like company PT with you guys would do. And I remember like you talk about being competitive. I remember because you were instantly like the quarterback of your team. And at the time I came in, I was one of the other guys that could throw. And I was like, all right, here we go. But I got lucky in one of the games that we played. I remember getting captain keys. And at the time, I had no idea this guy. Like, I think that enlisted just have this envision that all officers are just a bunch of nerds. Yep. And I got lucky when, when I saw he, he showed up with like the old school Newman receiving gloves on. And I was like, ooh, this guy must be able to play. And he had wheels. Oh, he had wheels, man. I remember the first time I kind of dropped back for one and he was, he was doing a nice zero route down the left sideline. I put the ball up way before I ever would have with anybody else. And I remember I laid it as far out as I could, which at the time, maybe I could have gone 45 yards. You know, like there's, I'm not Cam Newton and just got all of it and just hit him in stride perfectly. And I was like, man, he is a fast dude. Yep. He had wheels. It was him and Colbert. I always put him and Colbert up against each other. Yep. Colbert was really the only guy who beat me in the PT test when I did a PT test it's with you guys before Colbert we played. on my team and then Keys would be on the other team. Yeah. And if we had all of them, if I had him and Colbert, shit, there was no stopping us. Yeah. Well, I'm glad so I got to show up and at, the, at some point, you know, at least even the game out a little bit so that the Vikings weren't always oh, yeah. you know, pounding every divisional opponent. What was that there, Will? I was just curious of, uh, where you guys – played all this flag uh, football. We would, they actually had soccer fields, quite a few on Fort, Fort Irwin, because it was the soccer was a big thing out there. Yeah. But yeah, we, we found a field behind the Class 6 store, believe it or not. It was, a, it was our that little was... hiding spot, and it was a perfect football field. I mean, 
you couldn't have had it was perfectly square. Maybe had a little tant to it, but not much. Um, and we would go over there, headquarters platoon, and then we would usually uh, take on an either either all headquarters platoon would play or we another platoon would show up, and then we would play against that platoon. And then and that would be two days a week, and then the other days, you know, we would do – but we were big on either football tournaments, basketball tournaments, even volleyball tournament because one of my platoon sergeants was huge into volleyball. I mean, I, I'm pretty sure his team or his platoon trained seven days a week for volleyball because there was no ifs, ands, or buts that he was going to win the volleyball tournament in the troop. I've got to find a way to get him on the podcast. Yes. Well, Ooh. I don't know if you'll be able to understand him. So No, not a chance. Yeah. He was he was probably the guy when he went through drill that he was the guy who spoke so fast with a Puerto Rican thick accent that yep. there was no chance you understood a word he said. The only way we understood Rivera was when he was in his pro mask. <laughs> Perfectly clear after that. Oh wow. Who right now also is a guy who made Sergeant Major and has his feet up on the beach in Florida. Yep. Yeah. Great guy. Man, so I remember um you know, I remember rolling out, everybody meeting in the parking lot, everybody saying their goodbyes and stuff like that. And then one of the odd things that I, I don't remember being programmed into the trip was that we got stuck in Bangor, Maine for hours. Yep. For Ryan what I thought was, was no there. particular. Our commander was from there, so it was good for him, but it sucked yeah. for all. Oh, didn't he have family showing up? His, his mom and dad were from there. Yeah. So I remember at the time I was exhausted because I'd stayed up the whole night before and I remember sleeping on the flight and I remember you coming back and tapping me and you're like, are you going to get off the plane? And I was like, I see no reason to get off this plane. <laughs> we're, we're not where we're going yet. Yeah, it was, yeah, traveling sucked because military was the last priority, but. Well, then the next step is that we end up, so we took a lot of vehicles. Like I took my ambulance with me for, now I realize no reason, but like we took a lot of stuff with us and then we kind of started looping up in Camp Bering, Kuwait for, it was probably at least two weeks. Oh yeah. A week and a half, two weeks. And we talk about the army being a small world. One of the guys that I saw was, uh, I think it was still a second lieutenant, but it was one of my former drill, drill sergeants from Fort Benning, Georgia. And seeing him as an officer, it was just one of the most confusing things that a young brain could ever have to experience. Uh, I remember there being hairs on the chicken wings, still the chow hall and bearing. Oh yeah. Which ironically, I found the guy who ran the chow hall during that year. And I met with him and I've had, I've had my talking to about that, but then all of a sudden, like, you know, maybe take us through the idea that you guys had to still take us to ranges in Kuwait. We still had to get our vehicles ready. And then the idea of armor that the transition from O2 to 3 or sorry, O4 to 5 is that we didn't have up armored stuff yet, at least not as we were bringing in. So like the process of tra- trying to figure out how to equip yourself the best you can, maybe take us through, you know, your experience with that part of it. Yeah. So, you know, we get there, of course, everybody gets integrated into the heat. In, you know, some type of a uh, daily routine. So our routine was basically get up and, you know, go uh, drive hours to ranges because they were all the way out in, I uh, can't even remember where it was at, but we would go out and do every range from the M9 all the way up to the to the M- M19 or the Mark 19. So we would basically, you know, everything we did at Fort Irwin, we had to redo it over there on the platforms that we were going to take with us up into Kuwait, up into uh, Iraq. And like Adam said, we didn't have, we had straight Humvees. Some of them we brought from Fort Irwin. Uh, 
and then we would, they had some bolt-on armor that they bolted on, and then we would put uh, sandbags on the floor. I remember that in my truck, in the commander's truck. And then the only ones that had up armored was the battalion, the squadron commander, and his PSD was the only ones that had up armored. Him and the sergeant major and the uh, his PSD had the up armored. They were the only ones that had them until we got up into theater. And then we would, I guess, hand over, we would get what was up there because there was a shortage, of course, because of the, of the war and, of course, the losing, losing them. Well, so you I guys remember, were training you talk, up. You talk about the up-armored stuff. I remember, like, uh, I had that FLA, that, that ambulance I was supposed to bring up. And you, you had your specific vehicle too, but I remember like these Navy welders were just torching off chunks of steel. And I remember bolting them to the truck and looking back at Blodgett at the time, my, my team leader. And I remember looking at him and being like, do you really think that they fucking care if this is painted? Like, are they going to realize this isn't bullshit armor? And so of course we had to, we had to paint it up with a bunch of shitty paint and then put in sandbags. The sandbags go everywhere that your feet aren't. So where your feet are, they're still exposed. Like under I, I had around the pedals. Floor, I could I not get my sandbags. Up up my my knees were up to about here, you know, trying to, when we took off, we took the trip up into uh, Taji at the time from Kuwait all the way to Taji. It was, it was a hair triggering. Oh, that was a four day, four, it was a three or four day trip. Yeah, we would, I can't, we stopped at different places to spend the night that were secure. And then, yeah, traveling was horrible. I mean, it was, Tired, long. You had no idea what, you know, you would hear oh. something, you'd think it was a gunshot. Where the hell did that come from? So that was like the weirdest part is the fear of the unknown is that we didn't know what we didn't know yet. And at the time, as we're still rolling through Southern Iraq, anything would worry us and trigger us. And it was, I remember at that point, it was just, it was super frustrating because, you know, we weren't, we were kind of on a dictated schedule. We couldn't take short halts whenever we wanted to. No. And that's one of the four funniest stories I wanted to tell. And I'm not even going to ask your permission to tell it. I that... coming. <laughs> <laughs> so we had the big ambulance bay, right? So we got this big open area in the back, but we're not treating anybody. I had a Gatorade bucket ready to go. Well, the Gatorade bucket was never used for water. You'd start putting trash bags in there. And I remember the one of the times we took a short, short haul. I remember uh, at the time top I was like, all right, I'm coming back. And then you got on the back and you're doing your thing. But then all of a sudden we had to pick up and keep going again. <laughs> And I don't know how long you were back there, but you're back there doing your business. And then you were clearly done. But then here is the, the senior enlisted of our company movement is trapped in the back of an ambulance with no radio combos. And his poor driver at the time had no idea probably how to handle anything. <laughs> but I'm just curious, like how was that whole experience from your side? Oh, I mean, that, that was hilarious. I mean, cause I, we had just hit Baghdad and, uh, we had did a short halt just to tell everybody, hey, look, we're coming in. Yeah. Baghdad, um, chances of having contact are probably a little higher right now. So, um, you know, tighten up, you know, get your, you know, tighten up everything, get ready, because you never know what, because we're in Baghdad now. So I'm like, you know, and I, I, I can't eat and then not go. That's just my body, just me. <laughs> so I'm like, shit and we started rolling we've come to a short haul i'm like i gotta go so i jumped in the back of the ambulance did my business but they had already it was time to go they kept rolling so i did my business into a garbage bag came out of the ambulance threw it was running back to my truck waiting on my truck to come get me jump in my truck and then all of a sudden we hear gunshots 
<laughs> distance. Everybody's freaking out. Oh, is that contact? Contact. Calm down, people. That's like miles away. Yeah. Everybody's just like, holy shit. Top was just in the back of the, the ambulance and shit. I don't know what he was doing back there. Uh, you know what he was doing back there. Yeah. And what's funny is at the time, I don't think we had any idea the terrain we were moving through. Like I look back at old photos and it's like checkpoint 39 through 42, which became our eventual home. And then all the way up to connect from Tampa to route wild and go up the West side there, like on, on camp Taji, that was like, those were two out of the three shittiest roads you could find yourself on in Baghdad outside of route Irish. Yep. And then just leisurely pulling in, and it was like pulling into a campground where you're just like, oh, where, where's our spot? Where, where, where do we put our things? Yeah, it was like, yeah, I think the one of the rest stops was a, uh, it was started with an N. It was, had something to do with satellites and stuff or something. Navistar. North Star, yep. Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah that's where we stayed one night. I remember that. Yeah. Um, yeah, so Navistar, it was like, hey, I remember like no, you're, like, like, this is it. you're gonna stay right here out in the open. <laughs> Like shit. And at the time it sucked because like, uh, I don't think we knew what we were up against. So I drove every mile just like your driver did. I'm sure unless he switched. And so I remember by the time I got to Baghdad and now that I've known a little better, part of me is like, Blodgett, where were you at, bro? (laughs) Like (laughs) I drove every day, four days straight for, you know, 18 hours a day. Yeah. I think, I I think, I don't think I drove because I was busy on the BFT all the time, but a gypsy and then, uh, I think um, my gunner, Dervage. Dervage. I think those guys swapped. I know they did, because but it was scary having Gypsy up on the gun. So, well, we pull in, we take over our pod section, we kind of find our zone. And you'd mentioned earlier, part of our area of operations included Sadr City and Houston and all that. So, you know, maybe elaborate on some of the macro stuff that you saw as the company first sergeant was moved as we moved into Taji there. Uh, shit. Of course. Well. First, it was trying to get, you know, trying to get our feet wet, figure out where everything was at. Um, and, you know, to me, pretty important was where, where our soldiers are going to live and sleep. So, you know, getting up our, our, our space, um, <clears throat> I thought was pretty, pretty important. I mean, we got, and then me and, of course, the commander, we had, we had one of the best first sergeant, or the first sergeant, one of the best supply sergeants you could ever ask for in the United States Army, who's now a CW3, I believe. Yeah. Um, dude was just unbelievable at getting stuff. And the good thing about him is he spoke, he was from the Philippines, so he spoke Tagala. Yeah. Everybody there spoke. So there was nothing we didn't have that we didn't want. That guy would get everything for us. I think I've come to learn that like uh, the supply sergeants are all Filipino dudes and they've got this like <laughs> n- nice little network going on yeah. and they all like know how to look after each other and, you know, paid off. Oh, it was, I mean, it, some of the stuff I, that he did for me and the commander were thinking about it today would be like, wow, I really had, he was really doing that kind of stuff, but he didn't care as long as I didn't take him outside the wire. <laughs> <laughs> as shady didn't go outside the wire he was okay because that's the only thing he didn't want to do was go outside the wire yeah he was okay as long as he was inside the fob and he ended up getting his cab anyway so how'd he get that uh moving from taji to um abu Ghraib. huh 
they got hit. That's I mean, sad. it was it was suspect. Sure. Yeah. I mean, it was like fine. Probably the front of the. It was probably front of the. Uh, I the convoy that got hit, and he was probably in the back. So it was one of those that yeah okay shady. <laughs> well, what's funny is like to not spend much time on Taji because Taji was, uh, you know, it's pretty laid back. Like in, in my assessment of that area of operation, Sodder City clearly sucked, but we never seemed to find any bullshit there. But oh, up in Houston, yeah, that, that town that we spend a lot of time in, uh, we, I think we enjoyed ourselves. We were finding these Kurdish food vendors and we were eating on the, eating on the economy. And Yeah, I mean, I thought Taji was horrible. I mean, because we thought we were going to, you know, find these you know, get into fights and, and you know, gunfights and shit. And the only IED we got was one of the Iraqi police found it and brought it. And we just, we got to see it through him. That was it. But so oh, I have never saw, we never saw jack shit. So we were oh, I have three. Harry, happy to get out of there. So you guys are, this is like March 05. Yeah, uh, February is when we kicked it off, but yeah. February through April, May. Yeah, okay. we spent the first couple of months in Taji and then got orders to move down to Abu Ghraib. And like the unit that we came inbound up in Taji, I think, if I remember right, was the Arkansas National Guard, who just a year and a half prior, we did their JRTC rotation to prep them in which President Bush came down and spoke at their pre-deployment ceremony. So it was kind of even weird to like see some of those guys and like, be like, wait a minute, didn't we just actually prep you guys for deployment and like yeah. have some of those stories. So when we moved, yeah, it was like, like nobody wanted to move, but we did, people were bored and wanted to get into the action. So it was kind of like, okay, so the other place we're going, is it going to be better? We're like, yeah, yeah, we're pretty sure you're going to see something. So yeah, it was kind of, Trying to think. I mean, it was easy to move, but it was it was a pain in the ass of uprooting everybody and then reestablishing back over on Upper Grave because we had a pretty good system set up in Taji. I mean, we were we were looking good. We had pretty much anything you wanted. We had it. Yeah, and, and Rachel Banak, uh, who we had on the episode recently, she was. Um, she was doing a lot of like ammunition supply stuff out of there because Taji, they were running SF groups. They were running teams through. There was just so much stuff happening that I think uh, from a logistics perspective, you could get whatever you wanted. And I remember we had a big variety of missions. We clearly had our zone, but then we were always doing some type of um, convoy escorts. I remember that's the first time we were running a convoy escort down to Abu Ghraib of like a hundred Iraqi army vehicles. And I ended up being a driver on that mission. And I remember there was so much, we couldn't get a short halt to go to the bathroom that I had to take my knife and like cut the top of the monster can off, then cut open my <laughs> pants and try to take a piss in a can while we're rolling down Tampa. Yeah. But just the, the variety of missions. And then we, you know, then we uproot and leave and go over to camp Liberty or victory or whatever the hell they call it. And that was quite the change. Yeah. So yeah. When we moved to Abu Ghraib, that was, it was eye-opening because there was a lot more stuff going on in Abu Ghraib, and it didn't take long to figure that out. And then, of course, when we got to Abu Ghraib, um, well, what was it? Camp Liberty. So Camp Liberty, we ended up picking up up armored, up armored vehicles, and then we ended up picking up four tanks. So we ended up putting a platoon in tanks, and then 
we ended up picking up checkpoint, what was it, 39, 40, 41, and 42. Yep. It was our main area of operation. We would do uh, 12 hours out on, on, on mission and then 24 back. We have three, three troops. We're doing nothing but rotations in and out of the wire unless, unless we did a surge. And then when we did a surge, we would stay out for, there'd be two troops out there at a time and you would only get 12 hours back. Yeah. And I remember one of the weird things was even during the, the most mundane of times, you were still living on a 36 hour day. So like when you think of readjustment and things like that, an area that I'm spending more time in these days is you take a guy who's used to a 24 hour clock and then all of a sudden your body has to readjust and live on a 36 hour clock. You know what that was like for everybody as we came home and tried to readjust back to a 24 hour clock again. I know for me, it took, uh, but maybe it hasn't taken yet, but you know what? <laughs> it probably it took me like five or six years before I could actually like get my body down to a 24 hour cycle. Oh yeah. Yeah. It was hard getting anything readjusting to anything, mainly just being out and about was hard alone. Um, so yeah, readjustment was hard, I thought. And that's only the time you're speaking of the time that you like clock in and clock out of the zone that you're in and think about like all your prep and recovery time on either side of that, that like even on your 12 on 24 off, you know, you're still looking at 15 on easily, especially for a command driver or anybody who's got a vehicle to maintain. And then you go to surge ops and we're looking at 24 on 12 off that, you know, at that point you're barely sleeping. No, it was hard. And then just keeping people awake outside the wire, you know, and keeping them busy just so they wouldn't like just park somewhere and just stay there and end up getting ambushed. Um, Of course, that's when we started doing, that's when one of our platoons just started mine detecting and end up finding caches after caches after caches. So not happening before like that seemed like a thing that we were exceptional at like we were very good at at, at seeking out caches and and getting rid of them so like when did how did that come about were we the only guys in the battle space doing things like that yeah blue um third platoon started that um because we used to do we had um after we got the tanks so we had lost a platoon to doing maneuvers because the tanks couldn't maneuver. They had, they were stationary unless we needed them, then they would be called up. But the, um, so then ended up with headquarters, second and third were the only three maneuverable. We ended up making headquarters a maneuver platoon. So we ended up, um, we, one platoon would maneuver, one platoon would drive the highways, one platoon would get out and talk to people. And then the other one would be just get out and talk as well, but that's when Blue ended up detecting someday they one day they just found it by accident, I guess. And they ended up finding a uh, cache. And then from there, it just became one cache after another, after another, after another. And you highlight on it being third platoon or blue platoon, but um, maybe take a minute and elaborate the idea of, of the, I think looking back, they had the opportunity, they came across a platoon leader that was leaps and bounds uh, prepared for his deployment and, you know, where he's got himself in his career today, you know, at the time he was Lieutenant Mike Ziegelhofer today, I think he's major Ziegelhofer, you know, maybe take a minute as far as and speak on your experience working with him and, and Sergeant Rivera, who you'd already mentioned, they were, they were a pretty high speed platoon. Yeah. So, well, actually it was, it was third platoon had, had Rivera and then they had Kara Nicholas, Kara Nicholas, 
Oh, yeah, that's right. There, the officer over enlisted guy. Ziegelhofer came. Every troop ended up getting an extra officer. So the extra officer was supposed to be your, um, uh, not your intelligence officer, but he was your coordinating officer. He would be the guy who would take care of the interpreters and do stuff. He was basically an extra, he was a platoon leader for headquarters, which was, didn't have a platoon leader. So Ziegelhofer ended up being that, being that guy. He was in the headquarters. We ended up rooming together um, because they ran out of room. So you know, I was like, I'll room with them. I got no problem because <clears throat> we had hung out together before deploying. So he ended up just being an extra officer. So then after Kara Nicholas got his platoon time, then he took over third platoon. <clears throat> and then Rivera was there with him for a little while. And then Rivera ended up standing up the mid team. And we ended up getting another guy. And then, <clears throat> but Kara, but Ziggelhofer, yeah, he's uh, an instructor up at West Point right now. I know the last time I'd saw him, one of the things that actually he was, he's at the White House right now. He's yeah, yeah. So that's eight. Yeah, he was president's aide. So, yeah. so in the last two Congressional Medal of Honor ceremonies, He's he has there. been the officer, the Army officer, who's presented the Medal of Honor yeah. to the president right. for him to be able to place upon the individual, which um, talk about when, you're, when you don't know where people are at and all of a sudden you're watching TV and you're like, wait, what? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, yeah and, that, and that didn't take long to circulate through Facebook that Ziegelhofer was the uh, presidential aide. So it was like really weird. Like, what do you mean he's a presidential aide? <laughs> yeah, that's cool. And that platoon, you know, my medic Garcia was over there. He was a young guy that came in. He might've been a PV2, maybe a PFC when we started to go down range. But I felt like that was a, a good platoon for him because he was a guy that was pretty rough cut. Like he was a great medic, but he was just somebody who liked to, he was, he was a good fit for blue platoon. I don't know how else to say it. Yeah. But those guys, man, they seem to run pretty hard. I remember Benson. They just had some guys that were they were totally fearless, and they were really fun platoon to watch do work. Big time. Yeah, those guys were – yeah, they were pretty crazy. <laughs> Understatement of the century. Yeah. yeah, they're the ones that end up getting in trouble, but that platoon ended up getting in trouble at the end. But it all worked out for Ziegelhofer. <laughs> Should have ended his career, but he ended up being the CG's aide. Was that not – I thought that was Red Platoon that made a big mistake, unless I'm missing out on – Yeah, Red, it was. The Red Platoon did it, but Third Platoon over, was Overwatch. Ah, uh, okay. So I didn't know the details on that. but yeah, um, They were the Overwatch Platoon, and it was kind of like a combined – because Rivera was on leave at the time, and that's how Rizard ended up getting busted. Gotcha. The acting platoon sergeant. Those are some of the details that I'd missed. The, the way that it affected me when I kind of look back at it is that we had to go back and do some type of assessment of the, of the area of what was, you know, basically a platoon came in and decided to use their, their tanks to knock down a few things. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, you know, I remember that one of those times is we all made it back inside the wire and I think we all thought we were done. Um, but clearly we weren't because we got tasked to go back out and do that. And at the time, I, you know, I was a senior medic, so I chose to go with. And that was one of, that was one of the few times that I remember thinking, this is, this is it. I'm done. Yeah, it was, it was very – it sucked because we thought we were done. We were getting ready to hand everything over. And then me and the commander and select people had to go back out and do the uh, battle assessment. So we figured out how much we were going to pay these guys for all the damage that they did. 
So it was not, yeah, it was, it was not, not a good time. And we moved down there and in, into Abu Ghraib area. And so like for people who may, might've worked in similar areas of operation that, you know, basically you, you hang a left out of, out of Camp or Liberty, cruise down the highway for a few, you know, 15 minutes, and then you kind of wander into the zone. And so Abu Ghraib prison is inside of this zone. And then west of Abu Ghraib, you've got your, your Marine Corps units that work that area. Um, but all the way, it's, it's a massive supply route. So there's just loads of stuff coming through there. Um, one of the funny things I remember doing uh, as a platoon medic and as well as a company medic is that whenever we rolled into Abu Ghraib prison, which was every mission, we had to go in and refill. And it was my specific job, one of those asterisks in all your fun jobs, is I had to dismount and run to the chow hall as fast as I could and get as much shit as I possibly could and make sure that, like, people were happy with their food when I got back from that shitty chow hall. And I think that, I swear to God, we ate nothing but, like, handheld pizzas, corn dogs, and surf and turf. For the Actually, year. I thought the mess hall was pretty good. I mean, they did take care of us, like you said. Oh, for you sure. walk out with cases of red uh, rippets and sodas and pretty much anything we wanted they gave us yeah i remember at one point on, on the mini fridge that we bought off haji and kept in uh, me and dervaj's room is that we had six cases of red bulls on top of that fridge at one point and that's not count for all the other stuff that we had in the trucks yeah people had ungodly amounts of rippets one of the questions i really wanted to bring up in this discussion was that you're, you talked a lot about company drivers and things like that. And you had a driver who later I find out is one of my Eskimo brothers, which we could probably tell that story too. But um, you guys had a unique relationship and I think that's the nice way of saying it. But um, I, I feel like you took the guy under your wing, but at the same time had the responsibility to make sure he, he got the full army experience. So maybe take a minute and talk about your driver, Chris Gillespie. Oh, Gypsy. Gypsy was a Gypsy was a tool. Yeah, it was like like Adam said. It was that you know it, before deployment we we realized that we had to make a headquarters platoon, so we had to have every you know drivers, loader or drivers, gunners, and you know stuff for our trucks because we knew we were going to end up being in trucks. So it was we didn't want to break up any of the platoons. So it was kind of like okay, each platoon had to give up guys. So we ended up with. Gillespie, um, Commander's Driver, and we ended up with some good guys, but yeah, Gypsy was a storyteller. He would tell you, like, like he was, like, played for national football, and, and he was just like, why are you in the Army if all this stuff is, you're, you're, you're doing all this, you know, and he would be, he had more stories, and, and Gypsy used to have, Gypsy was a, a he was uh, on the receiving end of my fuck stick numerous times. I had a, <laughs> I had a, a little, it was a wiffle bat. It was a styrofoam wiffle bat, like three feet long. And I took the middle out of it and put a piece of rebarb in it. And nobody knew it had rebarb in it but me. <clears throat> so when he would fall asleep, that's how I would wake his ass up driving. He would get the fuck stick and it had fuck stick wrote on the side of it. And he's not joking. Like he would fall asleep while driving <laughs> like get asleep driving we'd be going across the highway and then boom back of the head oh shit oh sorry my bad i wasn't sleeping i wasn't sleeping no one time the truck was uh, sideways or on a side of a hill yeah seconds of flipping over uh yeah gypsy was how he 
I think the only reason he didn't get fired is just I didn't want to break up anybody else's crews. And that was the only reason. I don't think Gypsy never got fired. Well, I think he saw him as kind of, you know, like your project, you know, he probably would have had a hard time in the lines, but uh, this, this is a photo. I'm sharing a photo right now of uh, Tom's vehicle. Somehow it made its way into a hole. And I'm curious, as you see this photo of your vehicle buried into a hole, what the hell happened? I'm trying to think, Oh, that's coming back from, we had just got the truck refitted. So all the doors were new. No, not the doors. It just had the air, got the air conditioning put on. Yeah. So we had to go pick it up. So he literally, there's another hole back here on the other side. He hit that hole. We went completely airborne and landed in this hole. Ugh. And ended up having to be towed back after our truck just got all new shocks and everything put on it because of the extra armor we had, these doors. <laughs> Yep, that was not a good day. We were all happy because we had the new truck, or the new upgrades anyway, because everybody else had up-armors, except us. I didn't get an up-armor until we got tanks. What was some of the feedback that you guys were getting from above when it came to some of the weapons caches that we were finding? Oh, shit. I mean, it was, like, a lot of times they were like, dude, is like, are these platoons just, like, putting the shit places and then digging it up. Um, but the squadron commander was the most, he was like Blackburn. Colonel he Blackburn was, was uh, a general now. Yeah. Yeah. He's a, he was ecstatic. I mean, he would, every time we would report one, he would come out and just hang out with us to, uh, to look at them because he wanted to see what they looked like. But he was, I mean, from that had I to be a big deal. Oh yeah. It was, I guess I'm trying to find, I have no idea what I do with my pictures. I, I mean, at the time. You think of how many weapons we took off the street at that time. We worded them so I wouldn't know what they were. Oh, yeah, that's exactly what, what I'm thinking, Adam, is because, you you know, the the enemy posture is such that, like, it's the Fedayeen and, you know, that just sort of, like, rolling over into that insurgency, right, at that time. So every cachet that, that's eliminated is a huge win. Oh, it was huge. Yeah, and, yeah. and, and some of them are just ungodly huge. Yeah, we, if uh, you know the opportunity comes up, I could tell the story about the engineers that I was attached to. Their second platoon went down to this place called uh, the village of Turkey, and they did an operation called Turkey Bowl, and just had like Mondo Connexes of uh, UXO and and just real ordnance that they pulled out, uh, you know, several caches, and they eventually made like a that made an appearance on a little video clip that went around that unit. Yeah. What year was that? Well, um, 2007. So that makes, I wonder how much of that bled off of the work that our unit did not to necessarily pump us up, but I do think that what we were doing at the time based on, um, the squadron level commanders, uh, feedback and things like that, we were, we we're the only guys really doing this kind of stuff. Well, I believe it, Adam. And, and as you guys are kind of talking about it, it was like what I thought of was the rip toe we did coming into that battle space that we had on our second deployment. And those guys, they were like, yeah, so here are a couple neighborhoods. Uh, they're real hotbeds of activity. We don't go there. And I'm like, what? I'm like, yeah, we don't go there. It's like, whatever. Uh, I'm like, well, that's why they're hotbeds of activity. So we had a bunch of work to do because they weren't really 
you know, getting after it necessarily. But uh, I guess that's just like some leaders are more aggressive than others. Some strategies require different, you know, commitments. But I really just think that, uh, yeah, they just weren't getting after it. Yeah, I, just, I mean, we just, I mean, I, I still think it was an accident that Blue found that stuff. And then it just became a, it became a squadron mission after that. I mean, oh. if that's the enemy activity that's going on in the area, I mean, it only makes sense to pivot to disrupt that. Yeah. Oh, because we found, I mean, tons of shit. And I just have no idea what to do with my photos. Almost so how, looking for photos. <laughs> how far that. removed in time was the start of those uh, cachet seeking operations with this uh Battle damage assessment from kind of the the tankers. Tankers gone wild there. So tankers gone wild was like the end all be all of the entire deployment. So like if we walk back in time, you know we started uh, developing weapon caches in probably June of 2005, because um, it got to the point that where, um, I would say one of the maybe toughest weapon caches that we found, or one of the uh, more emotional ones, was that. Um, and we can choose to, to spend as much time on this is that one of the times that we had uh, Tom's unit was pulling back up on a major checkpoint, checkpoint 40, 41 alpha, I believe. 41, 42. Um, and you're pulling back up there. And unfortunately uh, uh, an improvised device went off as they were pulling through a, a kind of a chicka chain or a, a serpentine and we lost our platoon sergeant. And um, that was something that the medic Blodgett worked on. Like we talked about, and so I think a lot of us, because that was that was kind of our first and only loss in the entire company at the time, that we held on to a lot of emotions for that. And it was a really tough one, um, especially with the guy, you know, maybe maybe we'll spend a little time talking about Staff Sergeant Pena. Um, Jorge Luis Pena was just uh, honestly one of the nicest people I'd, I'd ever met. Um, I was new to the company for the most part. I came over and um, the last night before we deployed, one of the stories that stands out in my mind that talks about his character was that one of our other guys that just came over from 10th mountain had this big screen TV still in the barracks. And it was the night before we deployed and we hadn't done anything with it yet. And so we, you know, who do you call when you're in trouble? You call your platoon sergeant and, and hope he can figure it out. And so we called um, Jorge and he, he was there with his entire family, his wife, his children, his extended family. And they were, they were doing their final night kind of thing, but he still got him and his brother-in-law and drove down in his pickup truck picked up this TV and we moved it over to another house in housing where we knew it could sit for the year. And then they, you know, they went about their business. We went back to our business. And I just remember thinking like, there's so many opportunities. You can not pick up your phone in the army. There's so many opportunities to let it be the next guy's job. And, and this guy's character wasn't like that. And he was, a, you know, he was the company master, the, the troop master gunner. And, you know, maybe Tom spent a minute talking about, um, you know, his legacy and, and who he was and, and, you know, as much as you're willing to talk about, about how that day went, because I'd like to talk, then I would like to stand up and talk about, you know, how, we, how I think we, we found maybe the weapon cache that might've had something to do with his loss. Yeah. I mean, it was, he was, he, he went to Mike master gunner school and then came back and it was, um, of course we didn't, there wasn't no such thing as a headquarters platoon. So it was easy to make him the headquarters platoon sergeant and then build a platoon around him for, basically for me and the commander to have some type of security while we were out outside the wire since we figured out we were going to be out there every day. <clears throat> so 
yeah, it was easy. The soldiers really cared for him, and um, he was a good guy, great, great NCO, and I'm sure he'd be still serving. He was with us still. Yeah. But, yeah, it was, we were pulling in 42, and it was, um, trying to think, commander's truck was leading, and then the second truck, and I think I was the third truck that day. The XO's truck was in the middle, I believe, or it might have been the XO's truck, then his truck, but I know I was last. And then as soon as they pulled in, it got, they took, they took the IED, and then I, uh, ah, turned away from the blast, and then I heard, uh, heard him yelling for a medic. So me and um, Blodgett, and then my, my uh, door gunner, well, I called him my door gunner, the guy that with the TV, he was telling me about Torres took off running, never even thinking about what we were doing. We just took off running, got up there and they already, they had, they already had Pena outside the truck laying on the ground and the truck was pretty, not too bad tore up. It was not that bad, <clears throat> but they had Pena laying on the ground performing first aid on him already. You couldn't, nothing looked bad. Um, they took his helmet off, and that's when you could see it. Something went through this side of his head, and of course, lodged into his into his brain. The doctors had killed him instantly. But we you know they worked. Lodgett worked on him for a good five minutes. We weren't that far from the prison. We were probably two miles from the prison anyway. So I um, yelled down at my dr driver, told him to back the truck up to me. We backed him up, loaded him in. The truck wouldn't shut because of the the litters were too long, so the doors were only shut about about up over three quarters. There was a, a good crack in the doors, which is something we learned. And me and the XO took off just two trucks because the other truck was had to stay there on the bridge. Took off, got him to the to the uh, hospital because it was a it was a cache already. So we got him there. On, there was nothing they could do for him. They already said. They said it wouldn't have mattered if we were there on the bridge. He would have never made it because of the, the way the rock inserted underneath his helmet into his into his brain. But it was it was quick. I mean, it was it was quick for him. I mean, but he didn't suffer. They said it was quick, but it was tough on the troop. It was really hard on the troop because he was cared for a lot by everybody. I remember um, at the time I was white platoons medic, and we were we were probably about. I don't know, three to five miles off going up this route called Forest Green, which is another place we fucking got blown up on. But it was just this little dirt road up next to a canal. And I remember hearing the initial call out over the radio. And, you know, as a medic, you're always listening for that. You know, where when do I hear the panic? When is it my turn? And I remember hearing that and instantly Sergeant Colvin switched off the company chat and kind of turned it down so only he could hear. And, the you know, at my point, I'm, I, I couldn't, the guy, if he told you the story, he'd probably say I, wouldn't, I wasn't shutting up because I, I just remember being like, hey, can I can I get put in? What, where do we have to go? Put me in. He's like, no, 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 we're fine. And then, you know, clearly later we, we learned a lot more about what happened. But um, I just remember one of those scenes that you, you just had the sensation in the air that you knew that something was different and you could hear it in everybody's voice that um, it wasn't going well. And, you know, when I think back about it, like you guys as a headquarters platoon, when I finally got to come into the platoon, that you guys were a pretty cohesive unit because you guys had experienced a lot of that stuff together. And um, it was really unfortunate, but I think that's one of the lessons learned in combat was that um, 
you know, nobody gives a fuck about whether you're good, bad, ugly, or anything like that, that um, when it happens, it happens, and it's just what you deal with. And so I think that, you know, we got pulled out of zone a little early for that by Colonel Blackburn. I think that was a choice that he made for us to come back in and kind of deal with it. But um, I remember the memorial and things like that. Um, it was a tough time for everybody. Yeah, we, we, stayed, we stayed out. This happened in the day. We stayed out till dark. I remember that. But we were supposed to be out there a lot longer. And because uh, it took a little while to get another troop spun up to come out and replace the troop. And then, but nobody in the troop knew, except for us, of course, that, that Pena was KIA <clears throat> until we got to the motor pool and when we rallied the whole troop into a circle. And then um, the squadron commander showed up um, with the chaplain at that time. We didn't want, you know, we didn't want the chaplain to walk up and everybody see, oh shit, the chaplain's here, we already know. People yeah. kind of knew, I think, but when they saw the chaplain get out of the truck is when it kind of hit everybody that, that he was gone. So, yeah, it was, it was rough, and then it didn't take long to get, get the guys back out, though. And that's the best thing. And get after it. That's the best thing is that I think that that was one of the parts that, you know, me looking as a lower enlisted guy, what our leadership did really well, in my mind, everything there. But the, you put us back to work. You gave us something to do. And um, I think immediately guys were, you know, now it's now it was very real what we were up against. And I think that at that point we were a little pissed off and, we, you, you know, we weren't going to laugh or, or take as much so easily. And I think it paid off. And, and part of the story I wanted to tell is that, you know, we started doing more of these patrols where we used more of these minesweeper devices or, or, you know, metal detectors. And, and we finally found a house that had line of sight to the bridge where that particular event happened. Yeah. And um, they had a, just loads and loads of stuff built into their caches. And, um, you know, part of the gratifying moments and maybe it's good, maybe it's bad. Um, but we decided, you know, one of the things we wanted to do is safely discharge these particular things that we found. Safest way to discharge it was to put it inside the home that we found them in the lawn of. Always. And uh, so we filled that house up, and I've, I still remember the three photos I've got of before, during, and after. One of the things that we did, I remember, is that once we corralled all the military-age males up, because they were detained at that point, uh, we went back up onto that same checkpoint. And I, I specifically remember... I, I feel like Sergeant O was part of that mission, if I remember right. I don't remember if you yeah. were there. Um, we pulled back up on that bridge, and I remember we told, and, uh, you know, this is one of those times you can judge me, and I'm, I'm okay with it, but we told those detainees that we put their families back inside their home. We didn't. We let the families go. But we told them we put their families back in their home, and they're about to see retribution for, for what we experienced. And then, boom, you know, we were, let bricks fly, EOD let bricks fly. And I remember that was – it was we blew up the whole fucking neighborhood, um, but it was one of those things that that's where I think a lot of us guys who are um, you know spending a lot of time without a lot of information that that was really gratifying for us to feel like maybe maybe we got something out of that maybe we 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 were heard. I think so. Yeah, I think so. Was and I remember that, that neighborhood. We never spent a lot of time down in that neighborhood, but I remember every time that we did choose to go down in there, you kind of had a gut feeling that you know, they weren't exactly supportive of what we were trying to pull off. Yeah. No, it was, yeah, it was important that we made a, we made statements after that. And I think it helped. 
Yeah, it shut down the and it's it, one of the sad things that like, you know, you ask why was Saddam successful at this country is because he was willing to put a gun in people's mouths, and yeah. then you take Saddam out of, out of it, and nobody, you know, that's just not the way the country is used to being run for you know eons and eons of years is yeah. that when we started to get effective is when we started to get aggressive and when we got aggressive then all of a sudden the landscape changed and we really had control over that zone i think and that's just you know that's that little medic guy in the corner seeing what he's seeing but i'm curious what your thoughts are too top yeah i mean it, it's it was yeah i mean i don't know it's it's hard yeah, to say huh just uh just from the outsider's perspective, listening to you guys recount the events of that day and sort of some of the weeks that followed, it sounds like you did a lot of things right, like as a as a unit in terms of sort of addressing that that traumatic loss. And then um, I guess I did have one question is like, what kind of memorial services were you guys able to put together over there? Just the standard, you know, troop level, company level uh, at a chapel where, you know, we did the uh, uh, commander got up and spoke, chaplain spoke. Um, I don't think the squadron commander might have spoke. No, he was not. Uh, standard roll, roll call, roll call done by me and then the, the volley of fire, the volley and then, um, you know, everybody going up and, and um, you know, touching the cross or whatever they wanted to do to, to and, you know, his picture and stuff like that. Just the standard. The dog tags for me, I remember grabbing dog them tags. a little bit. It was his boots, rifle, dog tags, his, his ACH. Yeah. And, yeah, some really powerful sort of symbolism and imagery there. Certainly yeah, I mean, kind of. It was really hard for my commander because, of course, it was his gunner. Yeah. So they became really close. So it, once everybody got out, and it was just the commander left in there. It took me a while to get him to pull him away. So. Well, that's one of the things you talked about earlier about, you know, at the time, Captain Keys and his character, that he wasn't a guy that um, – it wasn't about him and his career. I think it was – he was – you know, he, he he had some soldiering skills that, you know, I don't know if people would see it. And so I think for him that, that seeing that, that was a pretty tough experience. Yeah, for him it was tough. Yeah. So how many times, um, you know, thinking back, like how many times I know how many times I got blown up when I was downrange, how many times, cause we've, you and I were in the same truck for several of these, but how many times total did you get blown up when we were downrange? Uh, I think it was four. Yeah. The first one was coming up on 42. We had just gotten our chow. <laughs> it yeah. was dark. We were going to go eat. Um, so that was the, the initial bubble. You know, you get your cab, everybody, ooh, ooh, okay, we're all good. Yeah. yeah. Okay. And then um, they got me out on the highway, got all my tires, and then uh-huh. twice in one night they got me. So I was with for those three. Okay. The time where they got all of our tires, it was Torres driving. We were heading north on, on uh, Tampa, and we were on the northbound lane, and we just had cleared checkpoint 41 Alpha. Yep. And there was a trash bag off on the left-hand side yep. of the road. I called it. And I, yeah, of all times, and like, Torres, I love you if you listen to this, but I, I doubt you are. Goddamn, you got to be able to react a little faster, bud. Yep. <laughs> I just picked the radio up, and I was going to tell everybody, trash bag left, and it went off. Yeah. But we got out clean that time. Um, and then the next, the next time is the same night. 
And so if I remember, I'm going to lay the landscape a little bit, but we were on route Michigan just East of uh, MSR Tampa. And that was a really hot zone for us. It was really competitive. You know, we had SF operations come in on a couple occasions and do some stuff in there right on the same block actually, which may or may not have been correlated to this night. But if I remember right, we were eastbound on route Michigan and we were probably coming through the area that you'd call, was it route green that took you north off that and took you up by that mosque, which was where we got hit the second time. I think so. Cause we were heading eastbound down there and then we gotten popped and uh, I don't, you know, I don't remember who was driving. I think gypsy must've been driving that night. But that one wasn't ex- exactly the big one because I think we were still okay. I don't remember if we had to change the tire first. But then we came around and we were we were kind of north of this area where there was a scout sniper set up in. And they, um, unfortunately, their sharpshooter missed their shot, but their spotter cleaned them up with a saw. And I remember that as we were getting ready to pull up in the area, and I was still pretty uncertain what was going on, that we were coming in from the north facing south. Yep. We pulled a bit too far in, and then we realized – what we were seeing and we got the landscape and top, I believe you called out the ID and then gypsy throws it in reverse. And as he's in reverse, it goes off. Yeah. My left ear still hurts till this day. <laughs> yep. That, oh, I remember uh, that one very clearly. I only wore my, my outside earplug. I only wore the outside earplug. I always left the, uh, the inside one out so I could hear the radios. Same here. But I always remember as we backed up, like it must've came right through Duravach's hatch and it just, my left ear just splits to this day over that. But then we pulled back forward. We secured. Um, clearly, no one ever took pictures of any of this, by the way, because we wouldn't ever break a law. But we definitely saw the guy who was down by the sniper set, and it was a really tough area. And I still remember a lot of times SF operations coming in and running, running stuff. Do you remember some of that stuff, Top? Like, like when we had all of a sudden you look up in the sky and there'd be a gunship and a bunch of other stuff, and we'd be relegated to all the the OPs. Oh yeah, yeah. Yeah, that night it was, yeah, the, the guy was down next to his bike. They took him off his bike with the IED still still in the bike. They yeah. getting ready to put in. And then, um, yeah, it was just pretty much after that, they just took us, got us out of the area. So I guess they were doing another mission or something, but they wanted us out. So and it was quick, in and out. I mean, we were there just to kind of oversee the scouts. And then that's, that's it for us. And then I think the other ones I was involved in, I think you were, were you on um, your R&R when we pulled up back on the checkpoint yeah. we had that car bomb? No, I, I had gotten back, but I had just gotten in that day and I didn't want to go out that night is when the V-bed hit. So do you want me to set the stage on that yeah, one? Or do you want I, to I wasn't out there that night. So we, um, we had just finished up our day's rotation and we were pulling back in onto the checkpoint to um, to talk to Charlie Troop at the time, and and you know do a commander to commander discussion so we could get out of zone. And we had come up off the west side of checkpoint forty one alpha, I think it was, and then um, it was the north side of the overpass because it was a north and a south side overpass. We pulled up on the north side, and we were a three group you know, movement. And as you pull in, usually there's somebody out there manning the concertina wire. Well, the way that it was set up for Charlie troop, the way that they chose to overlook that OP is they had Bradley fighting uh, vehicles on either side, but it happened the Brad that was looking over the West down route, Michigan, they were also trying to pull maintenance on the, on the vehicle at the same time. 
And so we had pulled in, but due to the fact that they were pulling maintenance, they didn't have anybody clearing it. And so a small vehicle pulled in right behind us and got right up against the commander's vehicle before it detonated. And it was clearly, uh, you know, it was the busiest day I ever had. Um, but, you know, before I come back and, and share maybe some of the details I had on that day, like, you know, top water or, you know, top, I wasn't there. I was, I heard about it. I went to the command shed to just see what they needed assistance with. But yeah, I was, I just knew my truck was involved because Gypsy was there and yeah. I can't remember who was commanding my truck that day, probably Dravage. And then they probably had somebody Torres up on the gun. I think the way that it was is I think Otomaro was the senior E7 and he was kind of covering down for you. But I, I don't remember if he was on the truck that day or if for some reason we had the XO on the truck. Um, yeah, I don't we, remember. We had pulled up and then Gypsy, your driver, had just gotten out to go take a leak. And then the, I had my door. I just opened it. And so it was about halfway open when the blast went off. And it was, you know, as if you can imagine, we were the second vehicle in the convoy. The third vehicle is a commander's vehicle that, uh, or at least that's the way we shaped up once we, we sat down on the bridge, but they pulled up behind the commander vehicle. So I remember the engine block from the small truck went and jammed up underneath six's truck. And then the guy's brain hit our turret shield and sat on our hood. And then the guy's upper torso was to the left of our truck. And so at that point, gypsy was nowhere to be found. He got up to take a piss and he just got blown up. And so, Right away, I'm trying to figure out where the fuck is Gypsy because that's the first person I got to figure out how to clean up because Duravaj seemed okay even though his bell was wrong. Well, Gypsy finally makes his way back to the truck as I'm getting in the back to get my aid bag out. And then we went to work. He's without a scratch. Without he scratched a, his ass. He got a scratch on his ass. Yeah. yeah. Okay. This dude's, yeah, all right. I just, I can just relate to like, like, oh no, assuming the worst, you know, as the medic running up and then, and it's like, oh, this dickhead's just hiding or grabbing. Fritos or something, you know. Yeah, pretty much. Uh, it's one of those things that, like, it's it's unfortunate because he probably already had enough going on in his life, and then this, like, that was a that was a pretty significant blast for that guy, you know, dismounted from the truck when that happened. And then I went back, and I remember I was working on I don't remember it was maybe Charlie Troop Commander's Gunner, um, but he had broken his left collarbone, his he had an abdominal um, avulsion where we were we were packaging up all this admin and then his left ankle was broken and rotated a bit. So it was me and two other medics working on him and we got him out and then we treated a few other guys, got them out. And then we started running the Iraqi detainees that we had on the bridge, started evacuating them. And this is one of those times where Tom, you'd kind of mentioned earlier, it was like, well, it was dark when we started, but lighter, you know, yeah. light to dark. This is one of those times to where if you ask me, I think we were on the bridge for an hour and a half, but I think we were on the bridge for six to eight hours doing this. Like, I think we treated and evacuated somewhere around 20 guys based on like the, the WikiLeaks article that I looked at. And um, we had lost one of the, one of the losses that we had that day was um, he was posthumously promoted to Sergeant, but it was Sergeant Orozco, Adrian Orozco. And he, it turns out he was, he was trying to work on his vehicle from the outside uh, when the blast went off. And so, you know, he went under the vehicle and off the side of the thing. And so that was one of the hard things for me is when I had to give everybody contractor bags to go and essentially, you know, do the best you can find it as much as we can. And like you'd mentioned in the incident with Sergeant Pena, when the chaplain showed up, the chaplain came out to bless everything he could that day. And that was the moment that like all of a sudden I realized it was night and I was like, what? Yeah. Um, and then Whitley lost his mind. Uh, Staff Sergeant Ryan Whitley, which hopefully we'll bring on the show one of these days, but um, 
he was the guy who the vehicle it was his truck he was the gunner standing up when it blew up right over his head and the engine block went behind him and um he at some point just started talking stupid like couldn't make sentences connect at all and i got called up to check in with him and i was i remember the thing was like oh man look at your look at your m4 it's got cooler shit than mine let me see it and then I hand it off and I'm like, dude, you're M9 too. What is that? Let me see that. Oh my God, that's so cool. And then I took it off his lanyard and handed it away. I'm like, all right, so here's the deal. Now you have to go because your brain's Actually, been I, I don't, Whitley wasn't up in the gun. It was Colbert. It was Colbert. Yeah, because Colbert said he blamed him for letting the truck in. He was on the gun that day. Oh, shit. So Whitley was down inside the truck that day. I think Whitley was driving. Because I remember... Colbert, I remember I, talk, I had to talk to Colbert about it. He's like, look, it was my responsibility. I'm the one that let that truck follow us in. I should have yeah. just lit his ass up. And I said, well, you know, you got to make that. That's a judgment call right away. You don't know. But that's the shit we live with, you know, like yeah. all that. Yeah. What you could have done. But that was, so, that, that was a brutal day. Yeah. I mean, I mean, sounds like you definitely had like a mask house situation. And um, I'm curious about how you adapted and what you were using for Kazavak, like who was coming to ferry those casualties uh, to the next echelon of care. Honestly, it was the same way that we repped it back when I was the substitute medic for Tom's uh, company early on is that um, one of the, one of the platoons working their way underneath the bridge that day was um, blue platoon and Sergeant Eaton, I think was in blue platoon and, He'd saw the entire bridge from his perspective. When he looked back, the entire bridge was engulfed in smoke and, and everything. It looked like the bridge went, honestly, it felt like it on the bridge. It was wobbling enough, but like he thought the bridge had collapsed and that they were going to have to turn around and just do um, search and rescue. But they looped back around. And as soon as they did, third platoon was the first one I backed that Charlie guy off to. I remember because that's the my low back issue. I, I popped that out when I was reaching his longboard to push him into the vehicle, but third platoon started taking our first guys and the, the litters wouldn't fit, but the longboards did fit barely enough. And so I remember putting him in that way. And so, you know, like, like what works the way that it should is like anytime shit hits South, all your platoons show up. And so working through captain keys to make sure that anytime that we needed, we at least had a two truck element that could evac these guys down to Abu Ghraib prison. And so, um, guys just showed up and then I wasn't the only medic on the bridge. I was, you know, probably the guy who was coordinating a lot of the operations cause I had captain keys ear, but we had a guy named Jake Davis, Eddie Valdueza. Um, the, those are the two I really remember. There was a, you know, Camayo was out there. Paladino was out there who got a purple heart for that. Um, there was just, a, you know, we had a lot of support that day and I think that's what happens. And like, that's the positive thing about this and why we have so many good memories is that, um, you know, when shit gets bad, people come to you, they don't walk away from you. And that's the hard part about civilian life is that you're, you're not going to find that anywhere else. Yeah. And then the other thing I would add is like, we just thought we just finished kind of discussing the loss of your platoon sergeant and how much that affected you. But Tom, I'm sure that one of your primary goals as a leader in that situation is to make sure that there are lessons learned and that uh, complacency, you know, never sets in. So I'd like to think that some of that well-integrated, well-coordinated uh, QRF response to that mask house as a result of lessons learned from, you know, previous experience. Yeah. And just, yeah, like Adam said, a lot of it's just instinct and just takes over. You, you realize you're doing stuff and then you're doing it, but then when you go back to recap on it, 
and then someone tells you you did it, you're like, well, I don't remember doing it. It's just second nature. And that comes back to, to all the training that exactly. we do and repeat and uh, refine until, you know, until minimize those mistakes. You can't do it wrong. Yeah. Yep. 100%. So moving away from what had to be, you know, one of the worst days of, of your deployment, you know, Adam and Tom, uh, how did, how did that deployment wind down? Well, it ended up with the, like you said, the crazy platoon or the, the platoon that went nuts. Um, they had their little fun there last night on the, out in the box. Of course, me and the commander had to go fix it. And then um, we redeployed, you know, did all the, the stuff that goes along with redeployment. What was that like at that time? Pretty easy. I mean, biggest. I mean, we had a rear detachment. I had a good guy in the back, um, Morris. Yeah, Jason Morris. Morris, Jason Morris, pretty good. So soldiers had rooms already ready, waiting for them. Part of the, when we came into uh, California, we when came into uh, Southern California logistics space. They got their room keys then, and then they were moved right, right on to Fort, from there to Fort Irwin. Um, quick thing at the, at the gym and then they were released, you know, to go to get them to the barracks, no driving for 72 hours um, for the ones that, you know, which was a good thing. Some people had to drive. <laughs> um, but other than that, it was, I thought it was easy. And then from there, it was just a matter of start, start uh, basic standard operations already getting people PCS, DTS, moving positions and shit like that. So this must have been it was the it was the close of OIF three, so uh, I'm assuming 2006 by this point. Yeah, January 2006. And the reintegration component, I, I know you said it was easy, but in terms of like hours or days, what what was the unit's sort of obligatory, um, you know, process in terms of the the trainings and stuff to to go through? I don't remember doing. I don't remember doing anything like they do now. Um, some, some classes. I think we did half day schedules. I think we worked a couple days and then everybody took off on block leave. It wasn't like it is now where you have to go through a bunch of uh, stations and it's pretty Assessments and recent, yeah. 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 There's nothing like that now. I don't, I think we had to do, matter of fact, we had to do stuff online. Most of us did that before we even left theater. Um, yeah. I remember uh, that we di we didn't even stay like that. We went to the gym and then immediately were given a two week block leave. Yeah, I mean, yeah. And I remember going like driving in the middle of. The, I think we got into Victor in the middle of the night. It was dark, but like I remember pulling into Los Angeles to my wife at the time's apartment at you know five in the morning and just being like, "No, that was a long day." Yeah. No. I. Yep. Yeah. I remember it too. I, yeah. Yeah, it was nothing like it is now. But I want to highlight that uh, I don't know who paid for it in Shannon, Ireland, but some very nice officer decided to put lots of money on the bar, which opened. <laughs> I think it was the colonel. Colonel. Yeah. I uh, thank you, thank you, sir. Yeah, um, he, he flew home with us. I remember that. 
because we we made sure to sample as much Guinness and local whiskey as we possibly could to where it was a silent flight the rest of the way home from Shannon. Yeah, it was a good flight home. Everybody catching flies. Yeah. Yeah, so once so, I got back, went through reintegration and the commander and we both left the troop the same day. He went off and did something. I don't remember what he did and I went moved to HHT. Stayed there for a year. Well, you talked about the significance of that as far as your career, you know. What was what what happened in that particular scenario that, that benefited you on your run to command sergeant major? Having that HHT was huge. Um, most most first sergeants only get the opportunity to, uh, you know, be a first sergeant for two years. Um, but back then, to get to be have the opportunity to have an HHT, which back then had over 370 something soldiers, to now that nowadays a squadron is that big. Wow. To be able to to show that I could do that and was successful at that was to me was the, the, the part that got, I, I being over there, I'd already made the Sergeant Major schools list. So being that HHT got me, I think, put it over the top to become a command Sergeant Major. Tom, what kind of, what kind of civilian education do you have? None. No college whatsoever, just high school? Yep. Yep. Stupid, ain't it? <laughs> well, I mean, I'm in, I'm I'm truthfully impressed because I know, you know, oodles of guys who like they had they got their associate's degree to get promoted to, you know, just to make E five. So, uh, the fact that you were able to navigate the your the army career progression system the way you did is that's that's pretty neat. I don't know how, I don't know that anyone would be able to replicate it. Now, I think so either personally. I would hope so, you know, because I don't know, like, it seems like a silly thing. Like, previously, education started with correspondence courses and things like that. Yeah. that like, why did it get away to where all of a sudden you've got to go get a meaningless bachelor's degree just to get promoted from first sergeant to sergeant? I mean, none of that makes sense, you know, like, yeah. getting out in the civilian world and see how this stuff practically applies that really these are job schools and we should treat them as such. And, you know, if you're out there learning how to be a, a philosophy guy, you know, at age 35, that's on you, but it doesn't seem. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I could see getting a, a degree in, in like leadership or something like that, but you know, these guys go out there and become, get a bachelor's in something that has nothing to do with the army or I mean anything period, just to have that bachelor's on your, on your, your uh, ERB. Yeah. Well, I hate, I, I realize we're probably like skipping over a little bit of stuff here, but I feel like this sort of naturally brings me to a point where I want to ask you about your transition from retirement into, you know, whatever civilian roles you have now. Yeah. So, well, I got out in 15, 14, 15, 14, something like that. It says 14 um, on your bio. Huh? It says 14 on your bio. I want yeah, to stick to that number. <laughs> yeah. 14. So I, I got out. Um, had really no desire to go to work right away. So, but I, I'd always, I kept, I keep up with a couple of guys that I was, was staff sergeants with and he, uh, he runs tank ranges over on Fort Knox. <clears throat> and he called me one day and said, Hey, uh, they're opening up a tank range here at Fort Bliss and they're looking for a, uh, a lead, 
a supervisor and they want you to put your name in the hat. And I said, okay, where do I go to do it? And how do I do it? And, you know, so he said, gave me the site. I did it, did the interview, got the job. And it was working for Raytheon because Raytheon runs all the tank ranges here on Fort Bliss. So went out there, worked out there for uh, about three months when I realized it just wasn't, it was shift work. Um, so, and my wife is work shift work. So she would be going to work and I'd be coming home or vice versa. So we sat down one day and we said, you know, it's not what I retired for. So I said, this, I really don't, we definitely don't need the money. So I said, I'm just going to give my notice. So I did. And then basically from there, I've been, <clears throat> been really doing, you know, um, I volunteer at the golf course as a greenskeeper. And then I, um, I'm actively involved in the Elks Lodge here in El Paso, the Elks Lodge 187, and the programs that they, I'm a vice president in the Elks Lodge. I've been doing that since like 15, 2015. So I've been there ever since. I've been out of the Army. I've been in the Elks Lodge. What is that? What does the Elks Lodge do? Is that just a men's service organization? No, it's not men's. It used to be many years. That's how everybody thinks about it. It used to be. It's a, it's a fraternal order, and it's you, you, it's, a, it's a membership only. So a lot of them are – they're all nothing but uh, do stuff for the communities. So they're all geared towards giving back to the communities. So one of our projects that we do is the veterans – of course, and we uh, we have a program that we take veterans out of the veterans' homes, not the homes, but the veterans' living center, and let them and put them into their own apartments, and we assist oh, with that. Awesome. Uh, we take them out. They each each veteran gets four hundred dollars to go to a store and buy whatever they need to set their apartment up, and then um, so we help them with that. And we've done over eighty. Last year we did over eighty. Course this year we're at a cease because of stuff but that's the big program and then the other big program we do at the elks lodge is we have a uh, a veterans home here in el paso um in the past when a veteran would pass away they would take the veteran out the back door take him to the funeral home and then he would get our service well with no dignity you know it's basically no dignity so what the elks lodge did was they stepped up and because they with the veteran the Veterans Home was saying, well, we don't have flags to drape over these guys and take them out the right way. So the Elks Lodge buys the flags, and then they take that veteran out the front door, you know, with people there, you know, honoring that that veteran the way it should be honored. And yeah. then they, you know, make sure he has a flag at the at the service for that soldier or that veteran. So those are a couple of package the programs that we do here. Everything the Elks Lodge do does is all toward geared towards community. It's all awesome. Yeah, I definitely, I definitely appreciate that. Uh, learning more about the the organization, I've seen Elks clubs in you know a number of towns, and just kind of never asked. But uh, it's good to good to know that that connection is there, that community service or like uh, spirit. And then also, you know, it seems to me like you must be getting uh, a lot of sort of social benefits, like camaraderie and then service from that too. Yeah, we have, um, of course, we have a golf team. <laughs> so we play golf a lot. And then we <clears throat> they, we meet 
uh, twice a month at the lodge to do, you know, business stuff, but it ends up being at the end, after the business is done, we end up, you know, spending time, you know, with the older guys and the younger guys trying to come in and stuff like that. So it is, it's, it's something I, I really didn't know, like you, I didn't really know about, I've heard of the Elks Lodge, but never knew what it was until I retired and started hanging out with guys that were members. And, and then when you talk to them, you're like, oh, okay, that sounds like it could be something to be, you know, give back to and something you can get involved in. You know, between Absolutely. your retirement date and between your start date with the Elks organization, what, what was, so maybe I'll start off with my mine a little bit is that, <clears throat> For two years, uh, man, my my integration sucked. I was not good at it. That, you know, I thought I was pretty high speed in my military time and things like that. But like when I get out, I was very busy. I was a full time student. I worked full time. I, I did a lot of things, but like I didn't do anything to make sure I was okay. And so I don't know. You know, you retired. You had a very accomplished career. Thirty years, made command sergeant major, and then all of a sudden you have to become Tom. You know, I'm curious what that transition was like for you. Well, I mean, it, it was tough because it's, like you said, you're going from, I, I went from being a leader of 4,000 people to, you know, just me and my family. <laughs> yeah. So it, it was a hard adjustment and it's still adjusting for me. Yeah. Of um, just being able to, the responsibilities and the roles, I guess. Is there, do you have a particular story about maybe like one of the bigger struggles that you've had that you'd be willing to share? I'm really, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty actually busy. Um, even though I'm retired, I mean, of course my wife, she works for Homeland Security. She's a customs agent. Mm-hmm. So now that, you know, I'm retired, I've taken over the role of the taking care of the kids. So when I met my wife, um, she had a nine-year-old and a 11-year-old and the, the oldest one is autistic so i don't know if you've ever been around autistic kids um you know it's it's a challenge because it's you know yeah he's he he has he has a lot of appointments he's he, he he's a lot to take care of but he's a lot of fun at the same time so um why she's concentrating on her career you know working for the federal government I'm taking care of the kids. So, and now the oldest is 20 and the other one's 18. He's getting ready to graduate high school and the other one's getting ready to go off to college. And the other one's gonna go to, to Western Tech, Western, mm. yeah, Western Tech or yeah, something like that. Uh, so, but it's, you know, it's been rewarding to take care of them guys while she's out, that she can concentrate on working. She doesn't have to worry about, um, you know, if they're getting to their appointments you know, do they have their medicines? Do they, are they being taken care of? You know, if there's an emergency at school, who's it, you know, I can go and pick them up. There's nothing, you know, worst thing I got to do is leave the middle of the golf golf course to go pick one up. So it's not nothing from, it doesn't deter away from her job at all. Yeah. So in the past, before I, she met me, you know, she lives close to her mom and her sister. So she would, you know, depend on her brother or sister to help her a lot if there was an issue at school or she needed, cause she worked shift work, you know, six to six to two, two to 10, midnight to six. So you never know what shift you were on because they move shifts every two weeks. So she didn't know, you know, for her, it's hard to set up appointments, but now that I was retired, 
it was easy to take care of the kids. So I spent a lot of my time taking care of the kids. Yeah, probably a no-brainer to to cut out that job with the ranges and whatnot. Instead, just focus on the family. Yeah, it was. It was easy. It wasn't even though I was still around. I got I was the opportunity to be around tanks. It was a tank range and opportunity to be around soldiers still. But it was just yeah, it was a no. It was too easy to walk away from that job. It was really easy. If you got the opportunity to pick up a cell phone that would call you at age twenty. You know, what kind of advice do you think you'd have for your, your younger self? I don't know, because I, I mean, just get educated, not, not educated in the civilian world. Try to get educated in the army systems, you know, the different schools, get more schooling. Because, yes, today's society is, today's army is, yeah, if you got a master's, we're going to promote you because you have a master's even though it doesn't have shit to do with military. And that's the, I think that's wrong. That's why I never pursued college for some reason, I guess. So I would say just pursue pursue schooling whenever you get an opportunity. I think Will and I can speak to the idea that like we both got out after our initial enlistments. He did a little bit more um, guard time than I did. But um, the one thing I learned about education is that unless it directly applies or it's like a terminal program that applies directly to where you're going to be, that maybe that isn't the best way to go. And I don't know if Will echoes the same thoughts, but um, I think it's nice to be able to be educated and be able to speak on certain topics. But at the same time, you know, you got to be conscious of your wallet. You got to be conscious of your time. And like, what's the best place to, where should you be to get where you want to go? Yeah. I mean, I definitely think uh, having a, a really good plan for how you're going to use that very expensive, you know, education, especially if you require as a civilian is uh, really important, but this kind of leads me back to a couple more questions I had for you, Tom is like one, that transition from first sergeant to sergeant major, what was that like? And then um, kind of as part of that, could you just lay out like all the various service schools that you've been to for us as well? Um, well I just did the basics, you know, you know, PLDC, BNOC, ANOC, first arms course, um, battle staff, shit, um, drug and alcohol, so, you know, those additional duty jobs that, you know, that was a drug and alcohol guy. I was the company retention guy. Um, I did instructor school. And then, of course, the Sergeant Major's Academy. So, but to go from the first Sergeant to the Sergeant Major to me was easy because I got, I actually went to the, to the Academy where some guys don't get the opportunity or, mm. or don't want to go to the Academy. They, they, they tell they tell the army, well, I'll do it by the long distance learning, which I think is the dumbest thing in the world. Cause it's the only, only time that we get a break in our military career is the Sergeant Major's Academy. You know, officers get to go when they become a major, they get to go and, and take and work on their masters while they're in the army <clears throat> and go to college. Why they're in the army and they don't have to have to wear a uniform. They just go and work on their master's program because to them it's required. So for us, when we get the academy, when we get this selected for the academy, it's the only chance we get to take nine months off and do nothing except yeah. teach, except learn. So once I graduated and then stepped into a, an operations sergeant major position, 
it was easy for me. It was, to me, I was ready and ready to do it. I appreciate that. And, you know, I think like um, sometimes you think the schools only serve certain functions, but to see, you know, how it could impact a career and take somebody to be able to make sergeant major and, and have that academy and things like that. Like, I think for guys like us that just decided to get out and do the civilian thing, it's it's pretty inspiring that there's some pretty good leadership programs to develop folks all the way through. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and then the academy is out. The academy now is more, when the guys leave now, they leave with a bachelor's. Mm. Automatically. Because it's, it's accredited school now. So it's better. I mean, thank goodness, because if if I want, if we were so inclined, I could spend you know four hours bemoaning the known issues that exist surrounding things like the Joint Services transcript and how like military experience and training just doesn't translate, as Adam said, into into the civilian sector. And even the cultural differences are are something that I'm I continue to deal with every day. But uh, Tom, as it relates to your story. What did we miss? Nothing really. I think we hit it all. Um, I got lucky, you know. I was, I was in the when I graduated the academy. I got lucky. Well, I didn't get lucky. I asked. They were looking for sergeant majors to stay here at Fort Bliss, so I, I volunteered to stay here because the time Fort Bliss was uh, air defense wasn't armor yet. wasn't an armor division. The armor division was coming, so but nobody wanted to stay and watch that. So I got lucky, came out of the academy and helped stand up a brigade and then um, was selected for SAR major, CSM. And then once again, they, uh, I called them every week and said, hey, you got any positions open? You got any positions open? And then they said, uh, yeah, Fort Riley. And I said, I'll take it. And then called them back. And then they said, oh, actually, we're standing up a brigade there. You want to stay there? And I said, yeah. So I got lucky and stood up a got lucky and got to stand up another brigade. Um, so stood that brigade up and then became a squadron sergeant major there in the 113 Cav. And then um, was selected by the division sergeant major to be a brigade sergeant major. That was the last time they, the division sergeant majors could select their brigades. Because then after that, that year, 2012, was when they started doing the same as the officers, selecting them through the command select process so I stayed a brigade sergeant major for here for two years and then went off to uh, Fort Campbell for a year and a half. And that's when I decided I'd left my family here because uh, she worked for Homeland Security and there was no reason to pick them up and move them. And then for her, you know, to get um, a job anywhere close there would be hard. So we decided to just keep them here, keep the kids in school, and then, would, you know, whatever happens, happens. So I just decided at that time I had my 30 and just retired, came home. Pretty clean. Looking back, are there any um, any awards you got or any recognitions or any, any part of your military experience that, that looking back that you can say, man, I'm actually pretty proud of that? Uh, probably my first bronze star is, is up there, you know, with the 11th ACR. Um, or if it would have been up to me, I would have gave everyone in our troop one. Because the shit we did and, you know, that we had, you know, when we were outside the wire, we were working, you know, there was, there was, there was troops that worked, but I don't think nobody worked as hard as us. So there was first sergeants that never went outside the wire. 
Yeah. Or if they did, they would stay at the checkpoints and inside of their uh, inside of an 88 or inside of a 113. I was the only first sergeant that actually uh, patrolled. Um, so that bronze star, I thought to me was, I thought it was very rewarding. And then my Legion of Merit mm. for my time at the brigade. Make those two awards stand out. Yeah, it's I funny, think- even looking back at that deployment, like um, I don't think anybody in Bandit Troop has any idea you know, I get lucky at the VA. I get to hear a lot of stories that we actually got a lot done and we were pretty tuned up. And um, I think that the one thing if I, I would say to anybody else is that in my my opinion, we're a pretty exceptional unit and that we got a lot done in a short amount of time. We were aggressive about the way that we did it. And um, I don't know, I don't know if other people feel that way, but when you start to get to see a lot of stories that that's, I think that's the way that it shook out. Yeah, I think the best thing for us was moving. When we moved into Camp Liberty, I thought for us that I think we would have went nuts staying in Taji. It'd be like just like right now, everybody sitting at home. That's exactly yeah. what we did at Taji. It was just going through the motions. We would get out, we'd go out and drive around for a couple hours and come home or to the fob and sit around and do nothing. But Taji was I mean, Liberty was actually every twelve hours your ass was in, in some type of a fight. Yeah. Yeah. One of the things that uh, one of the stories I forgot to talk about or bring up that hopefully it's not too late is one of the funnier ones that we heard is that we were on route Michigan eastbound. We had turned around at the the canal and we're coming back westbound. And I remember the sound of what sounded like a rock in the wheel well. And hearing that sound for a minute, I remember all of us were kind of like, what is that? Is there really a rock in the wheel well? And then I remember my window finally spidered and I was like, oh, nope, we're in contact. Yeah. Yeah, I remember that. And then having to figure out, like, how, were those guys all on, like, large ladders to get to the top of that wall, that palm grove? Because it just seemed like what they were able to pull off, they must have just been doing one of these guys where they just hold their arm over the top and blindly spray and pray. Yeah, I was. Yeah, I remember that night, too, now that you think about it. But little stuff like that, yeah. Um, one of the things that we do here that we'll take us into is we do a little bit of rapid fire questions and uh, just a couple of quick ones. Curious to hear what your immediate, you know, don't think about it. Just give us your response, send it. Um, but it'll be a few questions and, and just something we do with everybody. So we'll take it away. Okay, Tom, I'm going to start with a real easy one. Uh, what's your favorite MRE? Spaghetti. Nice. Great choice. Okay. Another easy one. Um, PT score, high and low, please. Probably 290-something, and then probably just over 200. Fair-ass minimum. Enough to stay. We've all, we've all had those days, enough, I think. Enough to stay off the, on the, off the radar. <laughs> yeah, you bet. Never failed one, though. Not a boy. Outstanding. So uh, how about – how about any, any – funny stories about uh like a soldier being too intimidated by your rank to interact appropriately and just like falling all over himself or an especially naughty problem soldier that stands out maybe for some you know lighthearted hijinks in the barracks or something not too terrible but uh, there's one one staff sergeant that who uh i'll never forget i don't remember his name because he it just, but he was a, when I was in HHT first sergeant, he, he pretty almost got me fired 
because I just had had enough with his ass. And uh, he was just, ended up being a meth, making a making meth or doing something meth in his quarters. And it, it, I mean, he was a train wreck. I mean, the guy was a, he was actually on the Colonel's PSD. And when we got back, he ended up just like being train wreck. I mean, the guy, he, I literally spent 95% of my day with this guy. And then, you know, one day the Sergeant Major called me and said, what's going on with this guy? And I said, Sergeant Major, I don't know. And I don't give a fuck about this guy anymore. And they were in the field training. And it was one of those ones where he's like, get your ass in your truck and come see me. I'm like, and then luckily the Ops Sergeant Major really cared a lot for me and knew what I was going through. Because this guy, this Sergeant Major wanted to fire me um, because of it. And then the Sergeant Major said, look, you fire him, I'm walking as well. And he's like, whoa, wait a minute, what am I missing here? So it, that's one that I'll, that guy was just a pain. Well, it sounds like you've had a lot of good leadership backing you up and mentoring you, and you've been able to pay that for it. So I appreciate that, just kind of as, as an aside. We've already heard your doo-doo story. Uh, no, you so, no, you haven't. No, you haven't. Oh, no. Wait, there's, there's another one? one. There's, there's a worse one. Wait, there's more. <laughs> no, there's a worse one. Bonus doo-doo story. Hit me. So we are coming in on the, from the, we're just coming off mission. Coming in hot. We're, and we had just, I don't know, we'd probably eaten, I don't know, something. So we're coming in and we're literally 300 yards from the gate. And, and I'm like, no, stop now. And Gypsy's like, top, the gate's right there. I'm like, I ain't gonna make it. Ain't gonna make it. So he stops, the door's not even open. The, the truck's not even stopped. The door's already open. My IBA's coming off, and it's right there at the door, and I just let it go. And and because I stopped and we did that, one of our tanks ended up getting in contact, so we had to turn around and go back outside the way. We didn't even make it in. We had to go back out and help them. Because if I would have waited, we would have been inside the wire. I mean, we probably still would have turned around, but they weren't too happy. <laughs> but that was a pretty bad one. And a, being the guy who was in the door behind him who had to jump out and then offer some type of personal security, <laughs> it looked like a goddamn bowl of orange chili was poured out in the sidewalk. Oh, it was bad. <laughs> it was so awful. And then there's Ooh. gate there's gate guards up in their like gate positions overlooking because we're right on the we're right on the, the northwest entry point of Camp Liberty. And it was just one of those things you're like, well, okay, that happened. I think after that is when 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 Adam turned me on to the pills that I never knew anything about. Yeah. That they, uh, well, that was the first I, time I was like, I I have medicine for you. <laughs> yeah, I was like, well, Adam remembers wire, his job. I would, take, I would take my pill and I'd be good the rest yeah. of the day. It would never, never happen again. It's the same shit we'd do for the scouts. We'd just give them a handful of loperamide and let them just take it slid into the ship for a few days. There you so go. Then, you know, top at the time would take a loperamide before we rolled out. Worked. Hey, man. Got to do what you got to do. Yep. You bet. I was going to say, like, I've heard of assaulting into the ambush, but uh, no, I just. <laughs> I'm sure the gate guards are happy with that one. Yeah. Well, gate guards are never happy. It's, I mean, that's part of the that tasking, right? Yeah. But hey, I, I appreciate that. Great job on the on the rapid fire. I'd like to close with uh, to hear hear a little more about the Order of Saint George and and Saint Barbara. I noticed that stood out amongst your um, okay. decorations in your bio. I'm not with, sure what that's for. If you could talk a little bit about oh, that, please. There's there's three levels of the Order of Saint George. There's the bronze, silver, and gold. So the bronze is given to uh, 
a, a 19 kilo series when they sometime in their career for doing, you know, just being a good tanker or a good scout, whatever. So someone writes it up for you. And then they, the bio I gave you is actually my write up for the, the St. George silver. So I have both. I have the bronze, which is just, you, you usually get the bronze while you're active duty. You leave PCS, someone gets it for you, writes it up for you. And then they, the armor school gets it to you. I think I got that one when I was a first sergeant or some first class, I can't remember. And then I got my silver when I retired. Uh, my buddy wrote it up for me and got the silver one for me. And that's for your contributions during your time as an, as an, armor, uh, as an armor NCO. And then the gold, you can get, the gold is hard to get, but it's, it's like for guys that like stay around and do stuff for the armor community retired, you know, like, you know, maybe when, maybe over at Fort Benning where they're still involved in stuff like different things on Fort, on the Fort or something like that. Just continuing your, your support through the armor community after retirement, someone can write you up for the gold and that's pretty, pretty prestige to get the gold. Um, the St. Barbara, I just got that as, as a brigade star major and the fires battalion guy put me and the commander in for it the same night. We both got it. So that's pretty prestige to have their, their award. And you said that's a, that's a piece of recognition from the artillery community, The artillery community. Yep. It's the same as ours, but theirs is called the order of St. Barbara. Great. Appreciate that. Infantry has one too. Can't remember what theirs is called. Well, hey, Tom, I, I, uh, I've really appreciated getting to know you a little better and, you know, I'm, I'm grateful that you've chosen to spend some of your time with us and I'm really impressed by the career you've had and some of the leadership opportunities you've, you've been able to, uh, absorb and then distill and, and pass along to the next generation. I know that's, that's incredibly meaningful and, uh, I hope that, in this kind of awkward time of COVID precautions, you and yours are doing well and you're enjoying life in El Paso. Thank you, Will. And good to meet you and continue to do what you guys are doing up there. You bet. Yeah, that, thank you. To, to kind of, uh, to thank you as well, you know, um, you know, there's some simple things that I think I learned from you. Uh, me as a young guy, you as somebody with a lot of experiences that first off, you taught me to never stop having fun. And there was no part of our deployment to where we weren't trying to have fun and have a laugh at something and, and see the, the funny side of stuff. You know, there's, there's, you know, we've been chatting for over four hours and there's a, a bunch of stories that weren't even shared just because there's so much there. Jesus. Um, <laughs> Jesus. Those things. And Dervage. The guy lives, he could, he could sustain off those single hey, and Will looks like Dervage. You know that, right? A uh -oh. little bit. He doesn't even know it though. <laughs> you got to dig up a picture of Dervage. Yeah, I'll pull one up uh, when we're finished up. But, um, you know, that's one of the, a lot of the lessons that I took from you. I think, you know, some other lessons is to um, to never give up. You know, you're going to get some bumps bumps in the road. Keep grinding, stay with it. Uh, the, the fact that, you you know, a lot of guys have the chance to get out at 20 and you win a full 30, that you, you weren't done. Um, the fact that everything you touched, you tried to make it better. The fact that you talk about your attention to detail, you know, you say you got the, you know, OCD, but really it's just, um, you have a standard. And I remember you having a standard and, and I always thought it was great because you had a driver that had a hard time getting there and it took a lot of pressure off me. Um, but looking back in your career, you know, I can't, a lot of time we throw on the idea of thank you for your service. Um, but it, 
honestly, I think Will and I, as well as our other team members, want to thank you for your service because it was something. It was something very unique. I think it was something that was very special. And I think when you think back, you're going to think of all the people that you affected positively, whether it was, you know, when you were a, a, a nobody on your first trip to Germany or whether it was when you started to become a somebody and started to get some education under your belt and learning how to develop guys, get back to Knox to where you go to the schoolhouse and you can train and develop again you know, as an OC to train and develop units to then as a command sergeant major to really have the influence over a massive organization of thousands of people that most people don't even know that a guy with no formal quote unquote college education can pull off. But clearly you look at your bio, you've done it, you put the work in. And I remember before I reached out to you for this episode, I did reach out to Brian Vogel and I, I kind of checked in with him. I was like, Hey, you know, I, I kind of want to bring uh, Tom on the episode, do you think that he would even, should I even go to this guy, you know, this guy that I have a relationship with? And I remember he was like, yeah, he'd be the first guy you go to. Um, and I think it just speaks highly of the relationship that you guys had. And then um, I can't wait to launch the episode and for everybody to hear your story. And, and what I hope is that it gives you more avenues to talk about what you've done. I, you know, I hope that the work with the Elks Lodge and everything else that you're doing isn't the end for you. You're still a young dude. You still got a lot of energy in you eventually these kids might be out of the house. And, you know, I think we're curious to hear what your next step may be. So, so stay involved in with what we're doing. We're going to stay involved with what, what you got going on. And, and from the, the bottom of everything, we wish you the best of luck. Keep it up. You Adam and good luck with your hunting and good luck with your daughter. Yeah, for sure. Thank you guys for everything you do up there. Continue to serve. We're not going to quit. If you know people or, that you think should come on, send them and send them our way. Yeah. Yeah, I'll talk to Ryan and see if he wants to come on one time. Oh, Ryan's definitely coming on. Yeah, yeah. And I'm sure Brian, Ryan's busy though. He's out there living the life on a ranch. Good for him. I mentioned that he was one of the first uh, first guys that I saw riding a Harley on post. And now that I own a Harley, I get it. Yeah, he's living in Montana, living the life. Living Good for him. him. Well, Cool. Okay. Uh, again, can't thank you enough. Um, you know, we'll be in touch and keeping up with you on social media, but the okay. episode should post by the end of the week. I just, you know, I've got a fair bit of editing to do. So we'll no, just let me know. Let me know. Especially my wife, she wants to listen to it. Awesome. Yeah, for sure. I'll send you, but okay. we're, we're on Apple podcasts. We're on Spotify. We're on Google. We're on all the major, uh, you know, networks that do it. Perfect. Cool. Okay, guys. Thanks. Yeah. Fight yeah, or thank die. You. Take Sorry, care. Fight or die. <laughs> All right, guys. Later. Take care, Tom. All right, bye.